It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to hear quite a bit tonight from a genius. A genius who said his best work was in old-time radio, Orson Welles. His famous Mercury Theater weighs in with three classic short stories, and we'll hear him make fun of himself as he pinch hits for an ailing Jack Benny on the Grape Nuts Flakes program. We'll feature a performance by one of the greatest American actors of the 20th century, Walter Hampton, as You Are There takes us to ancient Greece, plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and Private Eye Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. So let the geniuses do all the work, and you relax, settle in, forget about anything that troubled you last week, it's over, and don't worry about next week quite yet. Instead, unleash your imagination here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. One of the things that makes America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator so doggone good is the fact that he notices things other people don't. Take tonight's adventure, for example. It's called The Nugget of Truth Matter, and it comes from February 4th, 1962, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Hi, Johnny. This is Ted Newberry over here at good old Union States Casualty. Well, hi, Ted. What's this I hear about you going off the deep end a couple of weeks ago and getting yourself engaged to, uh, what's your name, uh, Mary Ann Hooper? Idle rumor, son. Just idle rumor. Oh, since when does an idle rumor hit the society pages of the Sunday paper? Oh, that. You mean this was just another false alarm? Just a sly bit of skullduggery by Mary Ann's mother. <laughs> she figured if it hit the papers, then I'd have to pop the question to her darling daughter. But Johnny, my boy, it backfired on her. How do you mean? When Mary Ann saw that blurb, she got so mad, she not only won't speak to her mother, she won't even see or talk to me. <laughs> Instead of you having to worm your way out of a romance again. Right. Thanks to dear old mama, and without having to go through any soppy farewell scenes, I'm back in circulation and ready to play the field. Well, just you wait, though, Ted. Huh? When you do fall, and I mean all the way, including the marriage route, you are going to fall so hard the crash will be heard halfway around the world. No, Johnny. The only girl in this world I could ever really take seriously who has the looks and figure and brains and wit and charm and all the other attributes. Oh? Who that? Uh, Pandora. Pandora Peters, the most beautiful, most charming, most everything gal I ever knew. So when she does finally come to see me, see and talk to me, okay, what happens? Oh, tell me. All she wants to know is how and where and when she can see and talk to you. Well, you can't win them all, you know. What was that? You heard me, so it looks like you're the lucky one. And, uh, she's really everything you say she is? Everything. So I smothered my feelings and set up a date for you, subject, of course, to your confirmation. When? Today, okay? Why not? What time? 2.30. That's about a half an hour from now. Great. Now, let's think about the place. It's all set. Oh, it is, hmm? Where? In this cozy, quiet little office of mine. Oh, now, wait a minute, Ted. That's what I suggested. That's what she agreed to, so that way it'll have to Oh, Teddy, you're a bum. Take it or leave it, Johnny. Well? I'll be there. 
CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Union States Casualty Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of offenses incurred during my investigation of the Nugget of Truth matter. I shaved, showered, put on a clean shirt and a new tie, taking my time about it. Then spent item one, a dollar thirty, for a cab into Ted Newberry's office at Union States. The answer to a fair maiden's prayer. You look like a million, Johnny. Hi, Ted. Sit down, huh? Sure. But I thought I said 2.30. You mean I'm late? Late? Let's see. It's only 2.18. Oh, you really made time. <laughs> After that pitch you gave me, what did you expect? Ah, that Pandora. Well, yeah, where is she? Oh, but there's one thing I just plain forgot to tell you. Yes, Teddy, like what? Johnny, uh, she's married. Well, no reaction? Mm. Well, I suppose I could take off my jacket and mop up the floor with you. Well, let's say you could try. And certainly it is the very least you deserve. But what's the use? All that buildup was just to drag me out of my nice, comfortable apartment and down here to take on some kind of assignment. Now, just wait till you see her. Sure. But what's it all about, Teddy? Well, the guy to whom she's happily married is young Philip Truesdale Peters. Good family and all that, but no money. Mm-hmm. That is not much at the moment. But Johnny, thanks to some electronic gadget he's invented, and with her dough to get him started. Wait a minute, Ted. Is that the new little plant about ten blocks east of here? That's the one. And one of these days, maybe he'll make it. Well, good for him. Good for that money of hers, you mean. Oh, she's loaded? Well, but she has enough. Anyhow, they're both clients of ours, straight-life policies. How much, then? Something over a hundred thousand apiece. Hmm. And each of them is the other's beneficiary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get any wild ideas. In spite of the fact that he needs money to push this invention of his? Well, don't worry. He doesn't need her dead to get it. Well, just the same, Teddy. Oh, now, come on, Johnny. Give that suspicious mind of yours a rest for a change. The way you talk sometimes, you'd suspect your own mother of murdering for a couple of bucks. Well, maybe I do go overboard once in a while. Hey, what's the matter? Through this portal is about to pass the most beautiful girl in the world. What? You, Ted Newberry, are the biggest flatterer in the world. <laughs> if only that handsome husband of yours wasn't bigger than I am. But come in, my lovely. Come in. Thank you. Mrs. Peters, Pandora, this is Johnny Dollar. Well, hi. Johnny. I stood there staring at was worth staring at. Twenty-five or twenty-six, maybe. Tall, willowy, blonde. A faultless complexion with just enough makeup to enhance her natural beauty. Eyes a kind of gray-green with little smile wrinkles at the corners. A cute little tilt of her nose and soft, full lips. Mm. And a darned attractive figure in a dress that didn't hurt it one bit. But there was something missing. 
Or maybe it was the other way around. Something there that shouldn't have been there. In her voice? In her eyes? I'm not sure. But there was a subtle coldness there that wasn't quite right. Not with all that beauty. The calm, calculating female that's invariably more deadly than the male? I wondered. I said hi, Johnny. Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. And did I lie to you, Johnny, about this gorgeous, glamorous creature? Oh, not Teddy. What so help me how anybody like you could ever have any problems? Pandora, I... But I do have one. And I'm afraid it's a pretty serious one. That's why I wanted to see you, Johnny. What is it, Pandora? Johnny, somebody is threatening to murder me. Really? Here, Pandora, you'd better sit down and tell us what this is all about. Yes, thank you. Oh... I'm sorry. That's all right. I am. Just the key to the Peters family car. Yeah. Thank you. Wait a minute. What? A little charm on this keychain. How about that? A little golden skull. Mm, very unique. Looks hand-carved. Well, it is, Johnny. From a single nugget that my grandfather found out in California back in the 1800s. Oh? It's my good luck talisman. Well, if you're being threatened, honey, you'd better hang on to it. Don't you worry. I will. But now... Let me tell you. Yes, I think you'd better. Well, it started about two months ago. Little notes stuck into the mailbox. We live out on Barkley Drive, you know. Better put that down, Johnny. It's 128 Barkley Drive. Oh, I'll remember it. Go on, Pandora. It was right after Phil got the final patent on his invention. Uh, just what is that invention, by the way? Oh, it's some kind of an electronic battery, I guess you'd call it. Mm-hmm. Just a tiny little thing that might be used in rockets or something. And Philip hopes to make a lot of money with it. You don't sound too enthusiastic about it. Well, I wasn't. At first, Johnny. It looked to me and my lawyer like just a waste of time and money for him to work on it. But when those notes started, well, I told Philip to go ahead with it. Uh, At least until the money ran out. So he put up that little factory building and he's buying machinery and all sorts of things for it. The threatening notes made you change your mind. Yes. Why? Because I'm just plain stubborn, I guess. What would they say? Well, the first one started out with a quotation, a kind of a religious thing. What was it? Do you remember? What profit is it a man if he gain the whole world but suffer the loss of his own soul? Ah. And then it went on to say that for one person alone to profit from such a device was all wrong, was sinful. Unless you give it to the whole world, you'll be sorry. That sort of thing. That doesn't seem like such a dire threat, Pandora. And what's more, it was meant for your husband. Well, that's what we thought, Johnny. And Phil just laughed at it. He said it was the work of some crackpot. Just the same, Pan. He should have taken it to the police. Well, he did, Teddy. And their opinion? They agreed with Phil. Because of that word, sinful, they said it was probably some religious fanatic that such things happen all the time. Mm. But then more of them came. And they got more threatening. Threats against my life, Johnny. Your husband's life, you mean? Well, we still thought so. And the police gave Philip a sort of bodyguard for a while. But then yesterday, another one came in the mail. It was addressed to me. In my name. And it said... Yeah? It said that... Here. Here, Johnny. I made this copy of it. Let's see Blind, foolish woman, it is you who are guilty. 
because of your money and that device of the devil. It is you who must die, and very soon. Do you see, Johnny, why I'm worried now? Oh, darn well I'd be, you poor gal. Pandora, yes. the police have the originals of the notes? Well, yes, but they say it's just the work of some fanatic who's trying to scare us. I don't think so now. Now I'm frightened. Now? What? You weren't frightened for your husband when you thought they were meant for him? Oh, well, no. Because, well, he just sort of passed them off. He laughed at them. The way the police did. But now, well, don't you see? Yeah, um, maybe I do. Now, what do you mean by that, Johnny? Or, maybe they're right. Maybe I am getting upset over nothing. Maybe it's just some crackpot. But won't you find out, Johnny? Won't you make sure? Pandora, you very well. What are your plans for the rest of the day? Well, I, I can, can't just stay locked up in the house all the time. Of course not. At least not unless you've got some police protection out there. Yes, well... Where's Phil now? Over at the new plant. Huh? It's in operation already? No, but he goes down every day in case they deliver machinery and furniture and things. And what time does he get home? The bus always drops him off in front of the house about 5.15. And your plans meantime? Well, I have to do some shopping and have a fitting here in town about 3.30. That'll take about an hour. Yeah. Then I'll drive out to that farmer's market on Spring Road where I always buy the meat. I promised to a steak tonight. And then? Then it'll be time to go home and get dinner ready. At least that's what I planned. But what should I do? Well, until I've had a talk with the police, I see no reason for you to change those plans. Now, listen, Johnny, she needs protection, so if there's anything I can do... No, it's all right, Teddy. With Johnny on our side now, I think everything will be all right. You don't feel that you need police protection? Well, do you? I mean, until you find out how serious these threats really are. Unless the police convince me otherwise. I'll be in touch, Pam. Good. Thank you. I feel better already, Johnny. You're a darling. And thank you, too, Teddy, dear. Bye. What a gal. I don't get it. Huh? What do you mean you don't get it? Teddy, there is something very fishy about this thing. Very fishy. Expense account item two, a dollar twenty for a cab back to my apartment where I picked up my own car, then headed out in the direction of the Peters' home, way out on Barclay Drive. But after driving all of half a dozen blocks, the car is suddenly conked out on me. By the time I got a tow from the auto club to a service station and a repair job on my carburetor by the slowest mechanic I ever saw, it was after five o'clock. So instead, I drove to police headquarters and talked to Sergeant Bill Budd. Johnny, I've been on top of this thing from the very first of those notes to Peter's. Or Louise White. And the last one apparently was addressed to her. The last one, yeah. Well, if I were you, I'd put somebody on that gal 24 hours a day, Sergeant, until we find out where those notes are coming from. Now, you listen to me, Johnny. Go ahead. That's just what we did for him right in the beginning for nearly two months. Good men do not even he had any idea they were on him looking out for him. What happened? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You figure the notes were just the work of some nut? That's what I told them. Meantime, we nearly broke our necks trying to find out where they were coming from. We bore down on every fanatic, every troublemaker in the town, and we know them all. Nothing. Then, suddenly, I got wise. How do you mean? You know very much about those two, the Peterses. Well, frankly, no. Well, in the first place, they aren't as lovey-dovey as they look. Oh? No, sir. And she has the money, Johnny. Some money, anyhow. Yes, so I understand. And I know it for a fact that she didn't want to sink a lot of it in that crazy invention of his. Crazy? Well, he couldn't get any of the big companies interested in it. I know that. But he was bound to go ahead with it. You know what I think? 
What, Sergeant? I think she started writing those notes in the hopes of scaring him out of it, out of spending her dough on it. You see, if he did scare and quit by himself, then he wouldn't blame her for his giving up on it. And, uh, Johnny... Yeah. That would explain how those notes were getting to him, in spite of all our attempts to locate the source. See? Well, it's a possibility, I suppose. But what about the one addressed to her? She hoped that would be the clincher, that's all. Mm. Of course, your little theory might explain why she didn't jump at the chance to have a bodyguard. You suggested that to her? Yeah. But uh, there is still another possibility, Sergeant. You mean that he's been writing them? Mm-hmm. So nobody suspects him if he knocked her off to collect all her nice insurance money. Right. In other words, until we can clear this thing up... Wait a minute, Johnny. If you think I'm going to put tails on both of them, on the house, on that plant for 24 hours a day... Sergeant Bud! Uh, 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 Mr. Peters! Sergeant, I knew it. I told you something like this would happen. And don't you see, after that last threatening letter, it was Pandora. It was she. This killer was oh, after. Now, wait, wait a because minute. Because it's been... Her money going into my invention, into the plant, and oh, this is terrible, I terrible, now. terrible. Wait, wait a minute. What do you want, Conroy? I'm sorry, Sergeant. I try to keep him from barging in this way. What's the matter with you? Aren't you going to do something about this terrible thing that's happened? Oh, well, what terrible thing? You know what he's talking about, Conroy? Uh, yes, sir, Sergeant. You see, I'm the one that found the body. The what did you say? The body. Yes. Don't you understand? Don't you understand, my wife, Pandora? She's been murdered. Frontiers change rapidly today. Mostly, they seem to expand. Lately, they show even promise of expanding right into outer space. CBS News is presently covering the effort to break into space, and when the time comes to report news out in space, CBS newsmen will be looking for space helmets with room for microphones. Through the facilities of the CBS radio network, expanded CBS News, brought into your home hourly, combines with this station's local reports to give you up-to-the-minute accounts of events that change the world. Listen to expanded CBS News every hour on the hour, weekdays, here. was murdered, Mr. Peters? Yes, yes, Pandora. Somebody killed her. When, Mr. Peters? Where? How should I know? I asked this policeman. He's the one who found her. You didn't see her? No, ask him. He's the one who knows about this horrible, terrible, awful thing. Conroy? If only you'd taken those letters seriously, we could have prevented now, this. Mr. Peters, if you want our help, you've got to calm down and pull yourself together. Right here. Here now. Maybe you better take a slug of No, 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 no. I'm... Now, take a I'm drink. Sorry, take sorry, a drink I'm of this sorry. brandy. Now, go on. Go ahead. All right, all right. Thank you. I'm sorry. Please, officer, tell tell them what, what you found. Yes, go ahead, Conroy. Well, I was out in my prowl car, you see, in the Spring Road section, my regular beat. Yeah. Well, somebody reported there was a car blocking that little side road into the woods about half a mile this side of the Spring Road shopping section, you know? Where, uh... Pandora went to the meat market. Yes, yes, she always bought the meat at the same place out there. And she said that for dinner tonight... Oh, okay, would... okay. No, I can't... All right, now, Go ahead, Tony. Yes, sir. Well, I investigated, and I found this car parked there with nobody inside of it, and the motor was still running, you know? Go on. So, well, I decided maybe I'd better look around, so I did. And that's when I found her. Over at the side of that little pond that's out there. Her head all bashed in. Oh, 
terrible way to catch us, Sam. Now, Some other way you... Now, come on, please, please. Go I'm on, Conroy. Well, I went on back to her car, cut off the engine, and then went back to the prowl car. Got on the horn to headquarters to Lieutenant Briggs. He's in homicide, you know? Yes, yes, I know. Well, him and Doc Campbell arrived at the scene a few minutes later, and I told them all I knew, and they took over. To the best of my knowledge, you're still out there. Well, did you find the weapon that was used on her, Conroy? Oh, no, 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 sir. You asked me, Sergeant, that got thrown into that muddy little pond. You'll never find it in there. Yeah, it may be. No, sir. I mean, with all the mud in the bottom of that thing? Yeah. Must well, be a layer uh, of it, 10, 12 feet deep in the bottom, yeah, you know? Yeah, okay. I mean, with all the trees around it. Okay, Conroy. And I know. Account of some kids trying oh. to swim in it last summer. Conroy. One of them got stuck. I had to haul them out. And if I hadn't have gotten there when I Conroy, did... Conroy, where and when did you find Mr. Peters? Oh, I drove right out to his house, Mr. Dollar. I figured somebody ought to tell him. I see. You were uh, home by then, Mr. Peters? Yes. I was... Worried sick when I found she wasn't there and had left no message. It wasn't like her. And, well, after those threatening letters, I, I, I knew something was wrong. I knew it. And when this officer came and told me what he'd found, Pandora. Yes, sir. That's when he insisted I bring him right here to see you, Sergeant. Yes. You, uh, you didn't take him to the spot out there in the woods. No, sir. He had me bring him directly in here. And, Sergeant, if you if you don't do something about this, if you, if you don't find this now, killer... Look, we're going to do everything we can now, Mr. Well, if you'd done something before instead of just just talking about it, this wouldn't have happened. Mr. Peters... No, no, there's nothing to worry about. It's only some crackpot, some troublemaker. It was a killer. I can understand that. It was a killer. Now, I'm telling you, we're going to do everything we can. Mr. Peters... Now, excuse me, i got to take this... Sergeant Byron. My wife has been murdered. Yes, he is, Lieutenant. For you, Conroy. Me? Huh? Okay, thanks. Now, yes, sir? let's see now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I... Well, well gee, I'm sorry. Well, now what has he done? Yes, sir, Lieutenant. Sure, whatever you say. I'll be out there right away. Did you pull another boner, Conroy? Well, I, uh... I stuck the keys to that car in my pocket after I turned off the engine. The lieutenant wants them. Well, go ahead, then. Take them out to him. Wait a minute. Can I see those keys, Conroy? Oh, sure, Mr. Dollar. Yeah. What? Just an ordinary set of car keys, Dollar? Yeah. And that's why they give us the answer to this whole thing. Yes, oh, I hope so. You have a set of these, too, haven't you, Mr. Peters? Why, yes, of course. May I see him, please? Yes, of course. Here you are. Thanks. Hey, will you look at that, Sergeant? Mm, that's some gold nugget carved to look like a skull. It's just a, a sort of a, a good luck talisman. Good luck? Yes. I'm afraid, Mr. Peters, not for you. What? These are the keys your wife had early this afternoon when I talked to her. That means that to get hold of them, you had to be with her. Between the time I saw her and the time her body was found. Dollar. That also means, Mr. Peters, that... Well, do you want to tell us? I had to. Don't you see, I had to kill her. Because of the money. Because I, I needed the money for my invention. I had to kill her 
Sergeant. Don't you think somebody better take this all down? I sure do. Thanks, So, with that full confession, complete with signature, there'll be no problem. He did it. He'll pay for it. Expense account total, and I may as well include the work on my car. Do you think you can afford all of 20 bucks? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, the most unlikely crook I've met in a long, long time. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Music supervision by Epo Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Rita Lloyd as Pandora Peters, Jim Stevens as Ted Newberry, Don McLaughlin as Sergeant Bud, Court Benson as Philip Peters, and Bill Lipton as Conroy. Be sure to join us next week same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hannah speaking. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the nugget of truth matter from the winter of 1962. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Just about five years after that broadcast, there was a real-life American tragedy whose anniversary we want to mark tonight. Fifty-five years ago this coming Thursday, January 27, 1967, three of our astronauts, including one of the original seven, Gus Grissom, perished in what was the worst disaster of the United States space program until the Challenger and Columbia shuttle catastrophes two and four decades later. To those of us who grew up in the space age, it was a deeply felt calamity. We had entered our teens and twenties filled with the optimism and hope that our country's successes in spaceflight had inspired. The event of that January evening was another in a series of news events that changed American life deeply in the 1960s. Just a few hours after the fire that took the lives of the Apollo 1 crew, newsman Mike Wallace took to the airwaves in a CBS special report. Here's an excerpt of that broadcast. This is a CBS News special report. This is Mike Wallace at the CBS Newsroom in New York. America's first three Apollo astronauts were trapped and killed by a flash fire that swept their moonship early tonight during a launch pad test at Cape Kennedy in Florida. 
Virgil Gus Grissom, 40 years old, one of the original Mercury astronauts, the first American astronaut to go twice into space. Edward White, 36 years old, the first American to walk in space. And rookie astronaut Roger Chaffee, 31 years old, training for his first space flight, Apollo 1, scheduled for February 21st. These three astronauts were aboard their spaceship 10 minutes from a simulated liftoff at Cape Kennedy when the fire hit at about 6.30 tonight. They were inside their spaceship, pressurized, buttoned up inside their spacesuits when the fire hit. A closed-circuit television camera was relaying pictures of the astronauts lying on their backs inside the spacecraft atop the two-stage Saturn I. There was a flash, and that was it, according to a NASA spokesman watching the television screen in the blockhouse a few hundred yards away from launch pad 34. The screen went blank, and he said there was no communication from the astronauts. They died silently and apparently swiftly. Their bodies have been left in the spacecraft according to the latest information from the Cape, pending an investigation into the disaster. President Johnson tonight mourned the death of the three astronauts. He said they gave their lives in the nation's service. Our brave men in uniform, whether in Vietnam or seeking the frontiers of the future, he said, mourn with all of us the tragic loss of three gallant and dedicated airmen. Mike Wallace, in an excerpt of a CBS News special report, the Fatal Fire Aboard Apollo 1, from January 27, 1967. That date has always held a special, personal meeting for me. Paraphrasing those TV news reports, I made my first radio broadcast that night on station WKCO at Kenyon College. Fifty-five years later, I'm here with you on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Appropriately, there can be no smooth transition from that CBS News broadcast to a comedy program. But the particular comedy program we're about to hear was itself born out of tragedy and suffering. As the spring of 1943 began, World War II had shaken the country. Tens of thousands of Americans had died in the war, and its outcome was still very much in doubt. Hollywood, Broadway and every entertainer in between, were doing their best to aid the war effort. The biggest stars were visiting army camps and naval installations and going around the world to entertain the troops. According to most accounts, it was during his visits to army bases that the beloved comedian Jack Benny contracted a serious case of pneumonia, a much more difficult illness to treat 80 years ago than it is today. His agent and biographer, Irving Fine, wrote that Mr. Benny spent several weeks in an oxygen tent. George Burns, Gracie Allen, and Orson Welles stepped in to guest host his show. And it's the second of those five Orson Welles programs that we'll hear now. Mr. Welles, at age 27, was still considered a boy genius. That his resulting godlike egotism, and his penchant for magic tricks made up the comic presence for the program with nods to Jack Benny's recuperation. Also mentioned are Alice Fay, the movie star of Mr. Benny's bandleader Phil Harris, the racy bubble dance popularized by the burlesque queen Sally Rand, and the announcer Don Wilson's large size. In the middle of the war, meet Dairy products, gasoline, 
and other commodities were in short supply, but jokes about their rationing were plentiful. The African American Eddie Anderson's Rochester would simply be a classic comic character, a harlequin, a puckish servant getting the better of his boss. If it weren't for the references to crapshooting and Central Avenue, sort of the Los Angeles equivalent of Harlem, with their inescapable racist overtones, you can't help but admire Orson Welles savagely making fun of himself in this March twenty-first, nineteen forty-three installment of NBC's The Grape Nuts Flakes program, not starring Jack Benny. The Grape Nuts Flakes program, starring Orson Welles, who is pinch hitting for Jack Benny. With Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Something for the boys played by the orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to turn the clock back to yesterday morning and show you what happened when our whole gang visited Orson Welles at his motion picture studio where he is writing, acting, directing, producing, and enjoying his new picture. Uh, Mary had just returned from the East the night before, so Phil and Dennis stopped by her house to give her a lift. Will you please stay on the outside, driver? We have to make a turn up here. Take it easy, Goldilocks. I know how to handle a car. Okay, sister, okay. <laughs> if you want to drive, come up here and sit on my lap. Nothing doing, honey. That'd be pleasure driving, and they'd take away my gas book. Catch on? <laughs> oh, Phil, behave yourself. You know how nervous I am today. Listen, Mary, there's nothing to be nervous about. You're just going to meet Orson Welles, and he's a nice guy. Well, I hear he's very temperamental. Sure he's temperamental, but who ain't? Take me, for instance. <laughs> you? Sure. My eggs was cold this morning, so I says to Alice, Listen, movie star, go out in the kitchen and give me a retake on this hand fruit. <laughs> I told her. You know, Mr. Harris, that's the way I'm going to treat my wife when I get married. I'm going to be the boss like you are. Who said I was boss? I'm still combing egg out of my hair, bub. <laughs> you know, women in the morning is poison. Watch it, driver. You nearly hit that lamp post. Well, I'd like to see you drive and straighten your girdle at the same time, brother. <laughs> now, that ain't no excuse. Oh, leave her alone, Phil. I know just how she feels. And getting back to Orson Welles, I think he did a great job in the program last week. What did Mr. Benny think of him? Yeah, how did old Sniffle Snoot like the show? <laughs> well, well, when Orson called up Mr. Mortimer, the sponsor, and bawled the heck out of him, Jack thought, sure, we'd all lose our job. He was really worried, huh? Was he? He pulled the string out of his pajamas and tried to hang himself on the bed lamp. <laughs> He was hysterical. Hey, Mr. Harris, isn't that the studio right ahead of us? Yeah, pull up here, driver. Okay, Goldilocks. How much do we owe you, miss? 
skip it, handsome. Just give me your phone number. But, Carter, <laughs> the meter says a dollar and a half. Don't underrate yourself, Junior. So long. <laughs> What women see in me <laughs> Me neither And I'm a woman <laughs> Come on Let's go inside the studio Wow Get a load of that sign Over the gate Where? Right there Through these portals Pass Orson Wells. Ain't that class? <laughs> hey who's this fellow Coming toward us With the long black cape And sword in his hand Well that must be The gate man I'll ask him Where Mr. Wells is Hello there Halt violets And state thy mission and having heard, I trumpet to the walls and sound thy welcome. <laughs> now let's all get a load of that character. Yeah. Uh, pardon me, could you tell us what stage Mr. Wells is on? All the walls are stage, and all the men and women merely players. I'd have given a million bucks if I could mush mouth like that. <laughs> You will find Mr. Wells on stage five. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Parting is such sweet sorrow <laughs> that I shall say goodbye till it be morrow. Longfellow. That Shakespeare. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, come on. Follow me, kids. There's stage five right over there. Gee, I wonder if I should have given that cab driver my phone number. Nah, play hard to get. That's my motto. Dennis, you can figure that out some other time. Okay, but I want to get married while I'm young and beautiful. <laughs> no use waiting. I got to have a talk with that kid. <laughs> Anytime, any place, sister. <laughs> All quiet. Well, here we are on stage five. Being an actor, I'll lead the way. Quiet! Quiet on the set. Hey, who's that guy? Oh, that's Mr. Tootlequirtle, Mr. Wells' secretary. Hello, Mr. Tootlequirtle. Hello, Dennis. Come right in, folks. Mr. Wells is expecting you. How is the old boy, old boy? Oh, he's been in a marvelous mood all morning. His uncle died and left him a pound of butter. <laughs> I don't see Mr. Wells around the set. Where is he? He'll be here shortly, miss. At present, he's in his dressing room with his valet, changing into formal dinner clothes for the next scene. Confound this blasted tie. It always comes out longer on one end than the other. Oh, valet! Valet! Right here, Mr. Wells. Rochester! Rochester, let me ask you something. Yes, Mr. Wells? Why is it that I am able to write, act, direct, and produce a motion picture, and yet I can't tie a simple little bow knot? It's the same with me, Mr. Wells. I can cook, drive a car, clean the house, and answer the phone, but I can't make an eight the hard way. <laughs> Here, let me help you into your tailcoat. Thank you. Oh, by the way, Rochester, I noticed a dab of ketchup on my gray suit this morning. You may have it. Thanks, Mr. Wells. Ketchup is hard to get nowadays. <laughs> I mean the suit. The suit. Suit is yours. Oh, 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 oh! Well, thanks, Mr. Wells. Thanks very much. What are you so excited about? Hasn't Mr. Benny ever given you an old suit of his? Just the one he wore with Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. <laughs> 
But I ain't got a horse. Oh, in that case, I shall give you a horse. A fine Arabian steed. Mr. Wells, working for you is paradise. Come in. Yes, Miss Harrington. Ready for you on the set, Mr. Wells. Here's the next scene we're shooting for your approval. Good. I'll glance over it. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> now, this will never do. Only an idiot could compose such drivel. But, but, Mr. Wells, you wrote this yourself. And there's no use waiting. I'll have to have a talk with me. <laughs> Miss Harrington, take down these changes. Yes, Mr. Wells. Instead of a ranch house in Arizona, it shall be a penthouse in New York City. Yes, Mr. Instead Wells. Instead of guitars playing softly in the background, I want a thunderstorm with lightning. How many bolts? At least a dozen. <laughs> and finally, instead of the girl slapping my face when I kiss her, she shall thrust a dagger deep into my bosom. Yes, I shall die. Die? But, Mr. Wells, it's only the second reel. Who'll handle the rest of the picture? My ghost. I shall work in whitewash. <laughs> that is all, Miss Harrington? Yes, Mr. Wells. I'll see you later, Rochester. If anyone calls, I'll be down on stage five being stabbed. <laughs> What a man! Never a dull moment around here. We've been waiting for him for an half an hour. Yeah, imagine wasting time around here when I could be out somewhere improving my mind. Don't be silly. There are no burlesque shows open this time in the morning. <laughs> oh, I mean with books or something like that. Jeepers, what's that? On your feet, everybody. Mr. Wells is approaching. Good morning. This is Orson Wells. Well, uh, 
Dennis and Phil, I'm glad you dropped by. Have you been here long? Yeah, quite a while, but I told the kids, let's hang around till Orsi gets here. Orsi? Who is Orsi? That's you, silly. <laughs> Orsi. <laughs> That's murder. <laughs> well, who is this charming young lady? Come, come, my dear. Speak up. Well, uh, my name is Mary Livingston, and I'm not the least bit nervous, so there. Now, now, Mary, there's nothing to be nervous about. Why don't you get back to town? Uh, yesterday on the Super Chief, I got off at Pasadena. Oh, I wish I'd known that. I would have arranged for the Tournament of Roses to be held simultaneously with your arrival. <laughs> Gee, I like this guy. Yeah, didn't I tell you that Orson really does things in a big way? Who did anything? He just said it. Well, uh, Dennis, I have spent years inflating the balloon that is Wells. Please do not puncture it. Yes, sir. <laughs> Tell me, Mary, how's Jack coming along? Is he up and about? Oh, yes, he's feeling a lot better. A few more days and he'll be all over his nervous breakdown. Nervous breakdown? I thought Jack had a cold in his chest. He did, but when he got his doctor bill, he went right from a mustard plaster into a straitjacket. <laughs> what? It took four of us to hold him down. Good heavens. Pardon me, Mr. Wells. What is it, Miss Harrington? Would you mind okaying the budget for this sequence? Not at all. There'll be one change here, Miss Harrington. Instead of wardrobe, $8,000, make the wardrobe cost $9,000. But, Mr. Wells... But nothing. I promised one of the extra girls a mink coat. <laughs> that is all, Miss Harrington? Yes, Mr. Wells. Yes, Mr. Wells. Yes, Mr. Wells. Sometimes I wish I weren't perfect so people could differ with me. <laughs> written out for me. I Dennis, uh, what are you doing with that script? Oh, I was just looking it over, Mr. Wells. I thought there might be a part in it for me where I'm a big lover. Lover? Oh, I'm sorry, Dennis, but you're definitely not the romantic type. Oh, yeah? Did a cab driver ever ask you for your phone number? Yes, and I'm having dinner with her tonight. <laughs> oh, Arcee, you're really on the beam, kid. <laughs> Whatever that is, I'm glad. <laughs> uh, here's Don Wilson. Uh, hello, Don. Well, hello, Arson. How are you, kid? Hello, 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 Don. Glad to see you, Don. Did you have any trouble getting through the gate? No, nah, they just rubbed some Vaseline on him and gave him a shove. <laughs> that Harris is a Lulu. <laughs> Mr. Harris. Mr. Harris. At this moment, I find it very difficult to refrain from slugging you. <laughs> well, by the way, Orson, uh, I brought along a copy of what I intend to say about Grape Nuts Flakes on the program tomorrow. Uh, would you like to hear it? Oh, yes, I'd like to pass on everything that's said on the program, everything. Well, there goes all them jokes I thunk up. <laughs> yes, Phil, I don't want them jokes thinking up the airwaves. <laughs> well, I'll be darned, I pulled a Lulu myself. <laughs> now you're getting somewhere well, see? Thank you. Well, Don, let's hear your message. Okay. Now, about halfway through the program tomorrow night, I'll say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, a few words about toasty brown, sweet as a nut, grape nuts flakes. Uh -huh. Just open a 12-ounce economy-sized package for breakfast tomorrow morning, and you will see why grape nuts flakes, with its malty-rich flavor, is America's fastest-growing flake cereal. Very good. Go on. But that's all there is, Orson. That's all? That's all you're going to say about grape nuts flakes? Good heavens, man. Use a little imagination. But, Orson... Ah, let me show you what I mean. Miss Harrington, Mr. Tootlequittle, sound effects, please. Yes, yes Mr. Mr. Wells. Faces, everyone. Curtain. Music.
Presenting Grape Nuts Flakes, I Love You, an Orson Welles production. Produced and directed by Mr. Wells, and starring Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, whether you live in the heart of a great metropolis, or on a farm where all is tranquil, whether your home is in the wintry north, or here in sunny California. Wherever you live, ladies and gentlemen, you will love the malty, rich flavor of toasty, brown, sweet-as-a-nut, grape, nuts, flakes. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, each economy-sized package contains not one ounce, not two ounces, but 12 ounces of those delicious golden brown flakes. I thank you. I feel much better now The Flakes and I have had our fling (laughs) Oh, by the way, Dennis Speaking of the program What song are you singing tomorrow? Black Magic It's a great number Let me hear it Sing, Dennis magic has been its spell that old black magic that you weave so well those icy fingers up and down my spine the same old witchcraft when your eyes eat mine the same old tingle that I And then that elevator starts its rise And down and down I go Round and round I go Like a leaf that's caught in the tide I should stay away But what can I do? burning desire that only your kiss can put out the fire for you're the lover I have waited for the mate that fate had me created for and Loving the spin I'm in Under that old 
Excellent, Dennis. I like that number very much. You may sing it on the program tomorrow. Thank you. However, the following Sunday, I think you should do something operatic. I want you to sing the quartet from Rigoletto. (laughs) But, Mr. Wells, the quartet is four different voices. I'll handle the other three. (laughs) Gosh, you mean you're going to sing soprano, contralto, and baritone at the same time? Yes, Dennis. That I gotta hear. You will, you will. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'd better get on with my picture. What a busy guy. He's a bee with brains. Well, by the way, Orson, what's the title of this picture you're making? Well, I've called my story very simply The March of Destiny. It deals with everything that ever happened. (laughs) From the beginning of creation to the present day. Hey, Orson, is there anything in it about me? Well, no, Phil. My picture is handled entirely in symbolic retrospect. What? What was that? Give me that again. He could give you that all day long, and you wouldn't even feel it. <laughs> Sit down, will you? Oh, Mr. Wells, a terrible thing has happened. Mr. Vere, your leading lady, has just eloped to Las Vegas with Jeffrey Hamilton. Jeffrey Hamilton? Yes, the man who plays the part of your brother in today's sequence. What'll we do? I have a very simple solution. Mary, you shall be my leading lady. Your leading lady? Gosh. Phil, you'll be my brother. Your brother? Are we twins? Heaven forbid. (laughs) Well, let's get started, shall we? Here's your script, Mary. Gee, if I'm going to be your leading lady, I'd better throw away this bubble gum. No, keep it. I may have you do a dance later. (laughs) Pardon me for interrupting, Mr. Wells, but we just had a long-distance call from Mr. Benny. From Mr. Benny? What do he want? He wanted to know if I was happy in my new job working for you. What'd you tell him? I lied, and now he's happy. <laughs> I know Jack. He didn't call long distance from Chicago just to find out if Rochester was happy. wonder what else he wanted. Well, he's getting better. Maybe he wanted to know if that cab driver has a friend. <laughs> That's probably it. Now, Mary, Phil, before we rehearse, I think I'd better explain this scene to you. Uh, quiet, everybody. Mr. Wells is explaining. Now, Mary, in this scene, you as my fiancé and Phil as my brother have parts which overshadow mine in dramatic intensity. You mean we're more important than you are? Definitely. The motivation of the scene, its mood and pulse and tempo, rest entirely in your hands. I want my face in the picture, too. Mary, please. Please. You, Phil, will play the part of my younger brother, who is a cheat. A cur and a scoundrel. Oh, I get it. A heel without a soul. <laughs> oh, that air is solid when he gets rolling. <laughs> Phil, you're a genius, and I ought to know. Now, as the scene opens, I enter your apartment, Phil, unexpectedly, and to my surprise, I find my sweetheart in your arms. And remember, Mary, you and Phil carry the burden of the scene. Okay. Right, now let's try it. You're quiet on the set. Mr. Wills is about to emote. Thank you. The door opens. 
What? What's this? Mildred, what are you doing here? Answer me, I say. What are you doing in my brother's apartment? Well... No explanations are necessary. (laughs) I have eyes. I'm not blind to what's been going on. If I had been madly in love with you, Mildred, I'd have brought things to a climax long ago. And now, Clarence, what have you got to say? Well... Alibis! (laughs) Alibis? Nothing but alibis. (laughs) To think that the two of you have been together every afternoon for months. Why are you looking at me like that, Mildred? Have you something to tell me? Come, speak up. Well... Never mind, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you're going to say it's, it's me you love and that Clarence is just a passing fancy. You're both strangely quiet. Why don't you speak up? Is it because your guilt is so obvious? Well, I... Wait a minute, that's my line. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> Come on, Mary. Give me the cue. Well, well. I've said well so much, I feel like the old oaken bucket. (laughs) Okay, well. This is the end, Mildred. Our engagement is broken, shattered beyond repair. But you may keep the engagement ring I gave you. That is, if you want it. Well. It's yours. (laughs) I must leave now. And as for you, Clarence, if you ever so much as cross my path again, I shall thrash you within an inch of your life. Goodbye. Clarence, my love, kiss me. Darling, I love you. No, 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 let's cut that. After my exit, the scene is definitely over. Uh, (laughs) All right, places, everyone. Let's shoot it. Camera, lights, action! This is the National Broadcasting Company. From the wartime vernal equinox of 1943, the Grape Nuts Flakes program with Orson Welles instead of the ailing Jack Benny. Next week, we'll hear a follow-up show from a few episodes later when Mr. Benny returned. As for Orson Welles, we'll hear him later tonight in a more characteristic vein with his famous troupe, The Mercury Theater on the air, here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog is the audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Sometimes, the titles of the Gunsmoke stories give you a clue to a mystery Marshall Dillon has to solve. This one's called 2020, and it comes from July 16, 1955, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. <laughs>
I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Chester. You know what I'd do if I run in Dodge? Now what? I'd get me a big bunch of them flat rocks, and I'd lay them all the way up and down Front Street. That'd take care of this dust. I'd also take care of the first rider that came along. Well, something ought to be done. Hey, look. There's a stage. Let's wait and see who gets off it, can we? Are you expecting somebody? No, sir. I'm just curious. You know how it is. Well, I know how it is with you. You know, you ought to get yourself a job as a railroad agent or something like that. Oh, I'd like that. Fine. Hey, look, there's that little whiskey drummer back again. Oh, I wonder if he's got any more of them little samples. Is he the only passenger? Nope, not a fellow. Hey, he's a mighty serious-looking man, too. Kindly handles himself like a gunfighter or something, don't he? Chester. What? That's Troy Carver. Who's he? Oh, he's an old friend of mine from Arizona. Come on. Is he a gunfighter, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, one of the best, too. Looks like he's headed for the Dodge house. Well, we'll catch him. He's a big fella, ain't he? Yeah. He's sure going to be surprised to see me. Oh, watch him jump now. Hey, Carver, hold it. He's got his gun on, Mr. Dillon. He's going to shoot. Stay back, Chester. Keep coming, mister. I'm watching your hands. Troy, it's Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon? Put that gun away, you crazy fool. Matt. Matt, how are you? Oh, good, good, Troy. Well, what happened there? Did you recognize me? Sure, sure, of course I did. Well, you were ready to shoot, Troy. No, no, I was joking, Matt. Oh, you were? Sure, of course I was. Besides, you come on me awful sudden, yelling like that. Yeah, I guess I did. Well, what are you doing to Dodge, Troy? What are you doing here? Oh, I work here. I'm a marshal. A marshal? Uh-huh. That a fact. Oh, oh uh, come here, Chester. I want you to meet Troy Carver. It's Chester Proudfoot, Troy. Well, I'm pleased to meet you. Any friend of Matt's, Chester. My gracious, you sure do move fast, Mr. Carver. <laughs> I thought you was going to shoot. <laughs> Guess you didn't recognize him. Huh? Oh, I was just playing. I've known Matt Dillon off and on for 20 years. Yeah, it's so, but it's been a long time since we last saw each other. No gallus, wasn't it? Yeah, that was back in the days when I was still trying to make an honest living. Uh, but you haven't told me what you're doing here, Troy. Looking for a fella. Oh? You ever know Lee Poland? Lee Poland? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, a long time ago. Well, the laws finally got him cold. He'll hang for murder when I catch him. When you catch him? I'm a deputy sheriff, Matt. Tucson. What? <laughs> we got word Lee Poland was going to set up and dodge, so I come after him. Well, you must have beat him here. I haven't seen him. I got plenty of time. 
Besides, it'll give me a chance to do a little gambling. Ah. Where are you going to stay? The driver told me there's a hotel down the street here. Well, well sure, right there. Where? With the Dodge house, right there. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Troy. Yeah? When Poland does show up, uh, I'll help you take him, huh? What'd you say that for? Well, no reason, except that Poland's mighty fast with a gun. I ain't exactly a beginner, Matt. Well, I, I didn't mean that, Troy. Well, why should anybody take a chance with a man like Lee Poland? If we both go up against him, he'll probably give up without a fight. You talk like you think I'm afraid of him. No, of course I don't. I'll handle him. It's my job, and you stay out of it. Right. Sure, Troy. Just as good as I ever was, Matt. Sure, sure. Yeah. Don't you go getting any ideas. You're going to find me that room now. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, Chester. I swear I don't understand him. I mean, he about shoots you. Then he gets mad at you for wanting to help him. And then it will... I just do not understand him. Neither do I, Chester. Was he always like that? No, he wasn't. Well, what is it? I don't know for sure. But I better find out. something wrong? Uh, I guess I'm tired tonight, Matt. Well, why don't you go home? No. What I'm tired of is heat and dust and Texas cowboys. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that big herd that came in yesterday. Well, there wasn't a man with it that could ever have known a mother. <laughs> they all acted like they'd been raised in caves. You know something? Huh? You need a few weeks in St. Louis, Kitty. Uh, I'm going next month. No? Yep. They already bought me a ticket on the Santa Fe. Well, good, good. <laughs> How long are you going to stay? As long as my money holds out, which means a couple of days, I suppose. <laughs> you come to see me, or are you looking for Troy? And I see he's still here. Oh, he hasn't left that poker table for three hours. Yeah, it's probably the first gambling he's done since he left Arizona. He seems like a good head, man. Yeah. Yeah, he's the best. Oh, there's one thing about him, though. Oh, what's that? He's awful hair-triggered. He almost had a fight with a barkeeper a while ago. Oh? Over nothing at all. He's got something on his mind, Matt. Something's bothering him. Yeah, I know. What is it? I'm not sure, Kitty. 
get out of here. Matt, he's starting a fight with the dealer. Yeah. Like talk, mister. Well, you're wearing a gun. I ain't going to use it. Now use it. No. Troy. Keep out of this, Matt. I never saw you try to force a man to draw before, Troy. That's what he's trying to do, Marshal. No, I'm not. What would you call it, then? I... I said for you to keep out of this, Matt. Dodge is my town, Troy. I stop trouble here no matter who starts it. Now, what's this about? I'll tell you, Marshal. He made me out like I was cheating, that's what. I had my cards laying face up right in front of me, and he told me to shove them over in front of him, and I wouldn't do it. They were showing plain enough right where they were. I don't deal crooked, you know that. I didn't say you was dealing crooked. It sounded like it to me. What do you want, Troy? Ain't no business of yours, Matt. I'm out of this game. I'm leaving. I don't know what's the matter with him, Marshal. He was getting on fine, then all of a sudden he blows up. Yeah, go back to your game. He'll, he'll get over it. He'd right. better. That fool coming in, breaking up the game like that, telling me what I can do with my What was that all about, man? I'll tell you later, Kitty. i got to leave now. Huh? I want to find Troy as soon as he cools off a little. It looked like you and him were having an argument. Yeah, we were. But I know what's wrong with him now. And it isn't good, Kitty. It isn't good at all. Matt Dillon, Troy. Well, what are you doing here? I, uh, I want to talk to you. Morning. Well, doesn't the Dodge House supply lamps anymore? There's one on the bureau there. Light it if you want. Okay, I think it will. I like sitting in the dark. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Well, I didn't say there was, Troy. Okay. Well, is it uh, all right if I sit down? Help yourself. Ah, thank you. What's on your mind, Matt? Don't you know, Troy? Wouldn't be asking if I did. Look, uh, Troy, uh, we've been pretty good friends in the past. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be here otherwise. What are you talking about? Well, uh, being good friends, I figure, kind of gives me the privilege of interfering. Interfering with what? With you. How? With me. Troy, you know what I'm talking about. You... You gotta quit, Troy. You gotta get out of this business while you're still alive. I don't know what you're saying. All right, all right, I'll spell it out for you. I wasn't 30 feet from you on the street today, and you couldn't even recognize me. 
I, I should have known then. I was joking you. I told you that. Well, what about the sign on the Dodge house? That's a pretty big sign, you know. I hadn't even looked at it. All right, what about tonight? That dealer's cards weren't more than three feet away, and you couldn't read them. I got a right to check a man's cards if I want. You just won't admit it, will you? You're making things up. You get a crazy idea and you run away with it. How are you going to recognize Lee Poland when he hits town, Troy? Smell him out? I told you, I don't know what you're saying. Don't you? All right, then I'm going to say it real clear. Whoever heard of a half-blind gunfighter? Whoever heard of a man that can't see going up against somebody like Lee Poland? That ain't true. It's true, all right, Troy, you shouldn't even be wearing a gun. The only reason you haven't been killed already is because this can't have been going on for very long. Matt, there's nothing... No, 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 you listen to me. Now, pride is a good thing, Troy, but it's not worth dying for. Not this way. Besides, there's nothing shameful about a man's eyes going bad. What, do you, you think people are going to call you a coward for that? Well, do you? I come here to take Lee Poland, and I'm going to do it. All right, all right, all right. You can arrest him, you can take him back to Arizona, but let me face him with you. No. He'll kill you, Troy, he'll kill you easy. You stay out of it, man. Look, Troy, I'm trying to help you. I don't gonna... need help. No man's going to do my work for me. You won't say it yourself, will you? You won't even listen to my saying. Now, you're talking crazy. <laughs> That's all you got to say, huh? That, and you keep out of this. <laughs> I mean it, Matt. Now, you ain't leaving here till you promise. Go on, say it. You're a fool, Troy. There ain't another man in the world could call me that. All right. Now keep out of it. Good night, Troy. Good night. Chester. Yes, sir. Uh, take a look at this, huh? What is it, Mr. Dillon? I'll oh, read it. <clears throat> Lee Poland, age 36, black hair, gray eyes, scar on the right cheek, walks with slight limp left leg. What's this for, Mr. Young? Well, I put down everything I can remember about Poland. I, I want you to take it to the stage office and into the stable and let Moss Grimmick read it. And tell him if Poland shows up, I want to know about it. And I want to know about it fast. But you said you promised Troy you'd stay out of this. Get going, Chester. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, and you might walk around and keep your eyes open, too, huh? I'll stay here so everybody will know where to find me. Yes, sir. 
Wolf. Hello, Doc. Yeah, Matt here. Oh, there he is. You can go in, Doc. I'm just leaving. Oh, oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that, Matt. How are you, Matt? Oh, fine, Doc, fine. Sit down. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, I saw him. Oh, what happened? I went to his room, like you said, and I told him what I'd come for. Mm-hmm. How'd he take it? Well, at first I thought he was going to break my neck. But somehow I managed to talk him out of that, and I kept on talking, and finally he let me examine him. The only reason he did, he said, was to prove to you that there's nothing wrong with him. So? It's hard to say for sure, Matt, but my guess is his eyes won't get any worse. They're as bad now as they're going to be. Well, that's something... But they're not going to get any better. There isn't a thing I can do for them. Oh, I just don't have the knowledge, Matt. Well, uh, did you tell him what you told me? Uh, I started to. Oh, what do you mean? Well, when I finished the examination, I started to tell him what I thought. But he wouldn't let me. He told me to come back here and tell you there's nothing wrong with him. And the way he said it... He meant it. I didn't argue with him. And I don't want him. I won't say anything, Doc. Good, good. Because Troy is the kind of a man who... Mr. Dillon? He... Now, what are you doing back, Joseph? I seen him. I was at the stage office, and I hadn't even gone in yet, and I seen him come riding up the street. Lee Fuller? Yes, sir. It was him, all right. Where'd he go? He was headed straight for the stable. But there's something else, Mr. Dillon. What? Troy Carver was there on the street, and Poland yelled hello to him. Said he'd be back when he put his horse up. Carver, just across the street there. He ain't moved at all. Yeah, he's waiting for Poland to come back. He knows it's the easiest way you can find him. It's kindly awful, ain't it? Yeah. Wait a minute, Chester. What? There's Poland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see him. Uh, one minute earlier, I might have stopped this. Well, I heard as fast as I could. Oh, it's not your fault, Chester. Uh, you stay back and out of the way now, huh? Yes, sir. Hold it. Hold it right there. Matt, what are you doing here? Well, if it ain't Matt Dillon. Don't you pay him no mind, Poland. Look at me. What's going on here? What do you want, Dillon? I'm the marshal in this town, Poland. He's got nothing to do with this. I'm arresting you, Poland. I'm arresting you for murder. Now, wait a minute. I ain't facing the two of you. It's me you're facing. Me, not him. That's enough talk. Don't come no closer. I want your gun. Now unbuckle your belt and drop it right there. No. Do it, Poland. You heard him. Shut up, Matt. You keep out of this. You can't face both of us, Poland. You said so yourself. Get out of here, Matt. I'm not moving, Troy. I don't 
understand this. I sure don't like it. You haven't got a chance, Poland. I always got a chance. No, but he got hit. Let's get him up to docks. He's still alive. Lee Poland sure ain't. You hit him both times. Here, give me a hand with Troy. He's bleeding bad. Sleep, huh? Yes, I see. Yeah, it's almost morning. Oh, is it? How's Troy? Yeah, he's over the worst of it. He'll live. Oh, good, good, Doc. Is he conscious? Yes, he's conscious. Uh, can I see him? For a minute or two. Then I want him to go to sleep. Oh, I won't take long. When you're through, we'll have some coffee. I'll grind up some fresh. No, good, Doc. Hello, Troy. Come in. Oh, Doc says you're going to be all right. You shot me, Matt. Yeah. You broke your word. You promised to stay out of it. I, I know, Troy. Man ought to keep his word. Uh, yeah. I shouldn't have believed you in the first place. No, I, I guess you shouldn't. And and I wouldn't have either if I'd been thinking straight. I wasn't thinking straight about something else, too. How is that so? You want to know what it was? Oh, sure. I... I don't see very good no more. A gunfighter... He, he's got to be able to see better than I do. All right. I'm going to quit. Now you're satisfied? Yeah. Yeah, I'm satisfied, Troy.
Smoke, produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Joseph Cranston, and James Nusser. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Twenty twenty, an episode of Gunsmoke from the summer of nineteen fifty-five, and from the big broadcast on WAMU eighty-eight five. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and we encourage you to visit our Facebook page. It's the Big Broadcast. One of the liberties that Dragnet takes in its portrayal of police work is the variety of assignments that detectives Friday and Smith undertake: one week homicide, the next week burglary, etc. Real police detectives may be experienced in a number of areas, but for major crimes, they usually stick with a specialty for quite a while. But that variety sure makes for a more entertaining radio series. And this week, the fellows are after an elusive gang. Of car thieves, from September first, nineteen forty-nine. It's NBC's Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to auto theft detail. In three months, more than 250 cars have been broken into. Property mounting well into thousands of dollars has been stolen. Two youthful members of the gang have been apprehended. The all-important brains of the criminal ring, the leaders, are still at large. Your job: get them. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next thirty minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, March second. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the night shift out of auto theft. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the interrogation room, and it was ten fifty-eight p.m. when I got to room twenty-six, chief of detectives' office. Real tough kids, aren't they? Yeah, they won't admit a thing. Now sit down. Thanks. When'd you pick him up? Well, about eight thirty tonight in the parking lot behind the Star Theater out on Sunset. He was lifting the radio out of a forty-eight convertible. He's had lots of experience. The report says you picked up a nineteen-year-old girl with him. She was waiting for the guy in a parked car across the street from the theater. The car was full of loot. The first real break we've had on those auto burglaries in three months, and it's no good to us. Neither one of them will talk. They won't even admit they know each other. You run makes on them? Just did. We've been questioning the boy for an hour, getting nowhere. Uh, what's his name again? 
Freeman, Stanley Freeman. Oh, yeah. Age 20. Address? Butte, Montana. Down here for a vacation. Uh, He doesn't lie very well, Ed. He's never been to Butte, Montana in his life. Knows less about the town than I do. Well, get to him. Right, Ed. Where'd you put the girl? We had a policewoman take her to our office. We can talk to her when we finish with the boy. What's her story? Hasn't any. She won't even open her mouth. Nineteen years old, probably needs a good spanking. Now get him to talk. Right. Did you run a make, Joe? Yeah, he's clean. Get wise, huh, Flatfoot? Look, you're in a bad spot, son. That kind of talk isn't going to help. Says you. We caught you red-handed trying to steal a radio that didn't belong to you from a car it didn't belong to you. Is that right? That's enough to send you to San Quentin, boy. You better give us the story. Shut up. We've got all the evidence we need for him. Maybe you don't realize how serious this is. We've had more than 250 car burglaries in this city in the past three months. Over $200,000 worth of property has been stolen. That's a lot of money. So what? So you're the number one suspect, young fellow. Your method of operation in breaking into that car tonight is the same used in most of the other burglaries. That means you're not going to be tried just for this job tonight. What are you getting at, Flatfoot? Listen, son. In the state of California, breaking into a locked car is a felony. You can go to state penitentiary for that. And we're going to file a complaint of burglary with the district attorney in the morning. You say you're from Butte, Montana. All right, I don't believe you, but we'll make sure. Ben, go down to our office and call the news photographers. Stanley here is going to have his picture on the front page of every newspaper in Los Angeles tomorrow. Right, Joe. No. You can't. I won't let you. I got my rights. What's the matter, youngster? Everybody wants his picture in the paper. Yeah, well, I don't. I won't let him. We got your picture already for him, remember? They took it when they fingerprinted you. You can't use it. You can't. I'll get a lawyer. Reporters will be over in a couple of minutes. We have to give them your story and your picture, too. Uh, this one. You won't! You won't! Give it all to right, me! All right, all right. Give it to all me! All right, Freeman, get your hands off of him. Now sit down. All right. Now let's have it straight. Uh, don't let him use the picture. Don't let him. You can't. You can't. We got to have the truth, son. Now look, you're 20 years old. You know right from wrong. You'll have to take your medicine. If you cooperate, we'll do all we can to help. I... I live out in the Wilshire District. All I wanted was a little extra money. We didn't take much. We didn't think it was so wrong. It was stealing, Freeman. You know that's wrong. Where do you live out there? Piper Avenue. 821 Piper. You won't give him my picture. You live there with your family? Yeah, my mother. Father's dead. Uh, promise me you won't give him the picture. My mother, she'd see it. Uh, promise me. You're working with a gang on those auto burglaries. We know that. Now, who are they? Where are they? And what's the setup? I can't. They get me for it. Who'd get you? I can't tell you. I can't. Who's your girlfriend, Stanley? The one you were with tonight? Joanne. Joanne Miller. Where does she live? Piper Avenue, same as me. Lives on the same block, 866. Is that her home? She live there with her folks? Yeah. Mother and father. They work. And you got her into this. Isn't that the story she gave us, Ben? I did not. I didn't. It was her. She said a bunch of kids were doing it. It was quick money, something to do at night. She started it. 
All right, Romero. I'll go see the girl. You stay here with Freeman. All right, Joe. Just stay put in that chair, Freeman. Hi, Marge. Hello, Joe. You and Romero handling this case? Yeah. I'd like to talk to the girl a few minutes, Marge. Will you stand by? Right. I'll sit over here. Thanks. All right, miss. What's your name, age, and address? I told this lady cop 15 minutes ago I'm not saying anything. All right, then we'll tell you. Your name's Joanne Miller. You live at 866 Piper Avenue. You live with your father and mother. Both of them work. You're a liar. That's not me. You're 19 years old. You live on the same block as your boyfriend, Stanley Freeman, and you're the one who got him mixed up in this gang. Isn't that right? No, it's not right. It's not. I didn't do anything. Well, that's only half the story. Freeman told us everything. You want to hear the rest? No. Stan wouldn't tell you. He wouldn't. He told us how you got him mixed up in it. Quick money. That's what you told him, didn't you? No, it was him. I can prove it. The rest of the kids will tell you. He got me in this. Ask them, they'll tell you. It was Stanley and Fred Milford and George Jansen. They started it, all three of them. All right. Will you tell the story to a police stenographer? I'll tell him everything. He's not blaming this on me. Marge, will you go get the stenographer? Right. Now, how many persons in this gang of yours? Oh, about ten or twelve. And it's not my gang, either. He got me into this, and now he's trying to lie his way out, blaming me. How long have you been doing this, burglarizing cars? Me? Oh, only about two weeks. It was supposed to be fun, something to do at night. The rest of them been at it a couple of months. Who's the head of the gang? I told you, it's him, Stanley, and Fred Milford and Jansen, all three. I only started going out with them two weeks ago, maybe less. All right, Joanne. Tell it to the stenographer the same way. Stenographer will be in a minute, Joe. Okay, Marge, thanks. Stay with her. Right, Joe. Just about a closed case, Ben. Girl gave us a full confession. She didn't. Oh, you're not tricking me again. She didn't. She told us you're one of the leaders of the gang, Stanley. Said you got her into all this. The other two are George Jansen and Fred Milford. About a dozen kids in the gang, all of them about your age. Isn't that right? She's lying, can't you tell? She's lying. She got me into the gang. Well, she did. She's Milford's girlfriend. Ask her. Oh, she can't lie out of that one. She got me into it. I can prove it. Who's the real leader of the gang? Milford. He, he started it. He organized the whole thing. He collects the stuff we get and he delivers it. Jansen helps him do it. What do you mean he delivers the stuff? Where does he deliver it? Well, somewhere in Dogtown, I think. Down around South Main, near the railroad yards. Who's it delivered to? Well, I don't know exactly. I heard Jansen mention the name once. Myra, he said. It's, it's supposed to be a big secret. Myra, that's that's all I remember. Where does Jansen and Milford live? Well, Jansen rooms down on East Flower. 1042, I think. It's, it's a rooming house. And Milford lives two blocks over from me on Quincy. 234 Quincy. He lives with his grandmother. Got that, Ben? Right. All right, let's pick up Milford and Jansen. It was ten minutes past one when Ben and I returned to headquarters with George Jansen and Fred Milford in our custody. In Jansen's room at 1042 East Flower Street, we found two fur coats, a box full of new car accessories, an S&W 38 revolver, and a 45 automatic. When we picked up Fred Milford at his home, we discovered five deluxe car radios hidden in the garage, plus a valuable assortment of cameras, cigarette lighters, and clothing. Both Jansen and Milford refused to talk, but when we got them to headquarters and showed them the signed statements of Stanley Freeman and the girl, Joanne Miller, they broke. Milford, um... 
Where else did you and your gang operate besides the Wilshire district? No place. Only out there. That's all. Same type of car burglars have been committed all over the city. You're telling us your gang didn't have a hand in them? It's the truth. Our territory was Wilshire district. We didn't go outside. You mean some other gang's responsible? I don't know. All I know is we didn't have any part of them. Is there another gang, Milford? Maybe. I don't know. You find out. It's none of my business. It is your business, Milford. You admit you and your gang committed 55 jobs in the past three and a half months. That leaves about 200 jobs to be accounted for. That's right. You figure it out. We have figured it out. I think you and your gang of young thieves pulled every one of those 250 jobs. There isn't any other gang. That's the story the district attorney's going to get. You're crazy. There is. I know there is. Then give us the information and save yourself a lot of trouble. Well, we're not the only ones. That's all I know. Milford, do you know how many years you get for auto burglary? I told you, we're not the only ones. There must be a couple of others besides us. Vince Mahoney, he's got a gang. Where does Mahoney operate? West Hollywood and Beverly. Where does he live? I don't know. Honest, I, I only met him a couple of times. Where'd you meet him? I don't remember. Where'd you meet him, Milford? Delivery. I met him down at the delivery place a couple of nights. When you delivered the property you stole from cars, is that right? Yeah. Where was then? Down by the railroad yards. Where? Chavez Street. It's a little alley off East Main. Who'd you deliver the stuff to? I told you our name's Myra. That's all I know. We meet her and some guy on Tuesday nights. We give them the stuff and they pay us off. Mahoney delivers the same night I do. Do you meet her every Tuesday night? Yeah. You're going to meet her this Tuesday, tomorrow night? I don't know. I guess so. Same place? Yeah. Are you the only one she deals with? Sometimes Joanne. Me or Joanne... I know what you're thinking. You want to use me to trap Myra. Well, what's it worth? You know better than that. How about it, Milford? Oh, what else can I do? Give me another cigarette. By 3.30 that morning, the signed statements and confessions were piling up fast. Milford gave us a list of the names and addresses of each member in his gang, and within an hour, they were all under questioning at headquarters. Most of the suspects, about one-third of them girls, ranged in age from 18 to 21. As they told their individual stories, the scope of the case grew until it covered most of the city. By late afternoon of the next day, Tuesday, March 3rd, three more gangs operating in Venice, Bel Air, and North Hollywood had been apprehended. They confessed to more than 175 burglaries from locked cars during the past three and a half months. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, Ben and I met with Chief Backstrand in his office. How many admissions you have now? Over 50, Ed. Here are the gang leader's statements. Uh-huh. What's their story? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. They all say this woman, Myra, set up the operation. You mean she got the kids and put them to work burglarizing cars? Well, not exactly. She picked the leaders, contacted them in bars or on the street, asked them if they wanted to pick up some spare money getting auto parts for. Then she didn't tell them to go out and burglarize cars? Well, not in so many words, Ed, No. After they brought in auto parts for a couple of weeks, she told them to bring her everything they could find, outside the car or inside. Those are the words she used. Five of the kids dictated those words into their signed confession. Mm, that should hold in court. What else did you get on this woman? Oh, she taught them how to work, told them to wear gloves, all the angles. Uh, well, we got most of the small fry. Now, where do we find this Myra woman? Any description on her? Yeah. Kids say she's about 33, 34. Good-looking redhead. Five feet five, about 120, well-dressed. No description on the guy she runs with. You run a make on her yet? Yeah, no previous record. We've set up a stakeout for her tonight. Two of the gang leaders have volunteered to go along, this Milford and Vince Mahoney. Uh, good. Down on uh, Chavez, where she usually meets them? Yeah, that's right. When? 11.15. That's the regular time for the meet. 
Gordon to the kid. All right, I'll be at home. Call me. I don't want to miss out on this one. When Ben and I left Ed Backstrand's office, we went home for dinner and a few hours sleep. At 9.30 p.m., we were back at the office. We met the men in the special detail, which Backstrand had assigned for the stakeout that night. We briefed them on their duties, and then we got Fred Milford and Vince Mahoney out of their cells. To avoid any possible suspicion of the presence of a trap, we had Milford's permission to use his car in the stakeout. The car which he had said he had driven to the delivery meetings with the woman, Myra, at least a dozen times before. We arrived at the stakeout area, Chavez Alley in East Main, at 9.58. The meeting was scheduled for 11.15. The moon was out, but the sky was overcast, and there was a cold wind blowing from the east. Hey, what time you got, Sergeant? Mm, about 10. Why, Milford? You getting nervous? No, just wonder. How you cops gonna rig this thing? In just a couple of minutes, we're going to plant you two in Milford's car parked up there in the alley. Now, you stay there until Myra shows up. We'll do the rest. Yeah, I know, but what'll we say? Suppose she asks for some stuff. We ain't got any. You won't need any. You won't have much time for talking. I suppose she wises up. Maybe she'll pull a gun. Maybe. Does she carry one? No, never saw her with one. Well, don't worry, Milford. We'll make sure you're not in danger. She's got an awful temper, that redhead. Got mad at me once when I squawked at the prices she was paying us for radios. What was she paying you, Mahoney? Oh, an eight-tube radio, good shape, seven bucks. <laughs> she got all the gravy and you got all the grief. You're not kidding. Joe, hmm? are you? Yeah, Steve, what do you got? Well, the men are all staked out, Joe. Got the area covered from every angle. All right. You got an extra man to stay in Milford's car? Oh, I'll handle that myself. Fine, thanks. Okay. All set, Joe? Yeah. Now, Milford and Mahoney, we're going to put you two in your car now. There's going to be an officer with you, so there's no need to be nervous or afraid. You just sit in the car and act natural. When this Myra drives up, don't leave the car. Have her come to you. You got it? Sure. Okay. All right, Joe, let's go. Sure is cold out. I don't even have a heater in my car. You stole enough of them. Okay, Steve, here they are. All right, boys. Milford, get in first behind the wheel. Okay. Mahoney in the middle. Now I'll sit in the back. We'll be parked in that garage across the street, Steve. Got a perfect view of the alley. Okay, Ben. Check with you later. Right. Mean night, Joe. Yeah. Come on. It's cold here in the garage, isn't it? Yeah. That might be a long wait. What time you got? Six minutes past ten. Thank you. Hey, Joe. What is it? Uh, it's nothing. Thought that passing car was turning in the alley. Relax. It's early. Lonely place. Dark. Gets on your nerves. That's it, Ben. Half past 11. Nothing yet. Somebody might have tipped her off. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Well, let's wait it out anyway. Joe, that blue coupe. Yeah, he just turned in the alley. Let's go. Come on, run, Ben. Behind you. All right, all right. 
fight you. I'll quit your fighting. What'd you get, Steve? Uh, here he is. Just drove up in the coop. Got out and called Milford Mahoney by the first names. He's in on it. What about the girl? No sign. Kid was the only one in the car. All right. Tell them in the stakeout's offered and I'd have them report back in. We'll take the kid with us. Okay. All right, young fellow, this way. What do you cops think you're doing? I ain't done nothing. Look, sport, we heard that from 54 different kids yesterday. We're tired of that line. Come on. When we got back to the office, we took the boy to the interrogation room and questioned him. He gave his name as Matthew Leiter, age 21. He wouldn't break until Vince Mahoney definitely identified him as a member of his car burglary gang and the special favorite of the red-headed woman they called Myra. Then Leiter copped out and told Ben and I that he had talked with Myra as late as 10 o'clock tonight. He told us that she had heard that the police had picked up some of the gang members and she asked Leiter to drive down to the Chavez Alley meeting place. He was supposed to tell Milford and Mahoney that the weekly delivery date was off until further notice. We questioned Matthew Leiter for an hour and a half. Uh, you told us a little while ago that you talked with this woman, Myra, late tonight. Yeah. Where'd you talk to her? At her home? At her home? Don't be stupid. Nobody knows where she lives. I met her at a bar. Which bar? Julia's. Out in Santa Monica. How did she contact you? Called me at home. She's not such a bad dame. She treats you right. Sure, that's why you're in jail. Did you ever call her on the phone? I don't know her number. None of the kids do. She's smart. She taught me all I know about the racket. You'll have a rough time getting her. Maybe, but we'll get her. Ben and I left the office at 2 a.m. and went home to bed. We reported in at 8 that morning to Ed Backstrand. The three of us went down the street to Koken's restaurant for a cup of coffee. Nobody was in a good mood. We had most or all the small fry in the citywide burglary ring, but it seemed we were still a long way from cracking the inner circle. The latter kid said that none of them knows where she lives, what her phone number is, nothing. Pass the sugar in. Mm. I think we still have a few angles to study on that score. Right now, I've got some more bad news for you. What's that? You been through your mail this morning? No, not yet. We haven't had a chance. I saw the overnight reports. There were 32 car burglaries last night. 32. All the way from Wilmington to North Hollywood. How you figure it? I can't. This girl Myra must have an army of kids working for her. How much did they get, Ed? Any idea? Uh, rough estimate, about $3,000. Usual stuff people are foolish enough to leave in their cars. Watches, cameras, furs, expensive clothes. M.O.'s the same? And like the others. If the car happens to have a rigid handle lock, they slip a piece of pipe over the handle for a lever and break it. If that doesn't work, they pry open the wing window. Some of the windows were smashed out. Sounds like you're in an awful hurry, Joe. Yeah, maybe this Myra wants a few big nights before she pedals the stuff and gets out. Uh, if we're going to get her, we can't waste time. Any suspects picked up last night, Skipper? None. Well, where did they hit most of the car? Outside the Pan Pacific, the parking lot. Hockey game going on. Must have been 4,000 cars for them to pick over. They picked the best. As usual. Well, you better get on it. There's one way to handle it. What's that? She works fast. You work a little faster. We got back to the office and we went over the reports one by one. Then we called the young gang members to the interrogation room and questioned them separately and re-questioned them. We got nowhere. Many of them had met Myra on the street, in a bar, but not one of them had any idea where she lived. At least that's what they told us. Ben had a hunch that Matthew Leiter knew more than he was telling. We had him brought to the interrogation room and all that afternoon until 10 o'clock that night... 
with interruptions for his meal periods, we talked with Leiter. He would admit nothing more than what he'd already told us. Yeah, it's got me beat, Joe. Yeah. Well, let's check with Ed. Good morning, Joe. Ben? Hi, Mike. Skipper in? Just went down the hall for a minute. Be right back. Hold it a minute, will you? Yeah. Chief of Detectives, I was handing. Yeah. For you, Joe. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah. He does? We'll be right over. That was Sergeant Hopkins over at the jail. Yeah? Matthew Leiter's got something to tell us. Says it's important. Have a chair here, Leiter. Yeah, thanks. All right, you wanted to see us. I'm getting even with that dame Myra. I'm squaring with you. Yeah? She told me if I was picked up, she'd have me out in a couple of hours. She promised me a lawyer if anything happened. Said she'd get me bail. All right, where can we find her? I don't know if she's there now, but you can find out at Francisco Motors. Big used car lot. Garage, too. It's out on Melrose, past La Sienica. What's the tie-up? That's where she fenced most of the stuff we stole. Some old guy she buddies with runs the place. Big shop in the back. Store a lot of hot stuff there. Barney. Uh, yes, Sergeant? We're through with them. Take them back. We checked with Chief Backstrand, and then we drove out to the Francisco Motor Company. We located it on the corner of Melrose and Geneva Avenue. It was a big layout. It consisted of a large used car lot sign bannering the slogan, Deluxe Auto Accessories, Lowest Prices in Town. Along the back end of the lot, there was a large L-shaped garage... We found the man in charge, and he gave his name as Paul Hackett, the owner of the car lot. In the garage, we found the entrance to a large back storeroom. It was loaded with thousands of dollars worth of auto radios, spotlights, cratefuls of assorted car accessories. Special closets built into the walls of the garage contained racks of fur coats, suits, dresses. Below that, smaller boxes containing watches and cameras, all wrapped in tissue paper. You can save all of us a lot of time and trouble by talking to us now, Mr. Hackett. Where is Myra? I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain what we just found in your garage? I didn't know it was there. I didn't know it was stolen. Well, which is it, Mr. Hackett? Make up your mind. I bought it. But I didn't know it was stolen. You can't prove I did know. I think we can prove it, Mr. Hackett. Some of those stolen car radios stored back there, the serial numbers are filed off, and this workbench here is full of filings. I... I didn't know... You'll have to do better than that. How does Myra figure in? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. It's all right with us, Hackett. We found the stuff and we got you. If we don't find Myra, you'll be doing time for two people. Stand still. You can't. You can't do this to me. I don't know anything about it. Come on, Hackett. We're taking you in. All right, get in the car. Come on, in the car. Am I going to jail? You're going to jail. All right. I'll take you to Myra. Hackett told us that Myra lived at 1345 Munich Drive in Beverly Hills. He said that he was Myra's husband. He told us that he'd been in a legitimate garage business for 10 years before he married Myra. She talked him into the ragged. He identified 1345 Munich Drive as their home. When we got there, we found stores of stolen property similar to those found in the garage. Myra was not there. Hackett had no idea where she might be. We sat down in the living room and waited. One hour, two hours, three hours. 
After five hours of waiting, the monotony started to wear on everybody's nerves, especially Hackett's. The whole thing, it was her idea. I should have known, all hers. She did this to me. I won't take it alone. Where is she? You tell us, Hackett. Told you, I don't know. She couldn't have gone. She didn't know. I'm not going to take this alone. All right, quiet down, quiet down. That you, Pa? Thought I heard you talking to some... Who's he? The police, Myra. The police. Your smart kids told them the whole story. What are you talking about, my smart kids? What are these cops All doing right, here in the living room? that's enough. Get your dirty hands off me. Get away. Those kids are right, Joe. She got a damn yeah. Who do you think you're... There, that ought to hold you for a while. All right, come on, you two. Let's go. All right, copper. You win. Stupid husbands. How many times did I tell you? Don't trust those kids. Don't store the stuff in the garage. Don't open it for anybody. Get a lawyer. No, you knew better. Dumb jerk. The idea of having those cops camping in the living room waiting for me. Why didn't you warn me? I'm going to divorce you. That's what I'm going to do. I'll stick you for plenty. Jerk. All right, inside you two. You got a smoke, Ben? Hmm. Yeah. Uh Here. Thanks. just thinking. What? Those kids were right. She's a pretty nice-looking woman. Yeah. Nice face. Beautiful figure. Mm-hmm. Sure talks a lot, though, doesn't she? Yeah. Hey, Joe, remind me to take home some flowers to my wife tonight, will you? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Paul and Myra Hackett were tried and convicted on seven separate counts of receiving stolen property. They are now serving out their sentences in the state penitentiary. Realizing that most of the young persons involved in the case were influenced by the strong personality of Paul and Myra Hackett, a separate investigation was made into the backgrounds and home life of the young offenders. In most cases, they were found to be basically good and they were placed on probation and returned to their homes. You have just heard the 13th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of W.A. Wharton, acting chief of police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Detective Harry William Vosper of the Seattle, Washington Police Department, who on the night of July 21st, 1949 gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. And now, an important announcement. Starting this Saturday, September 3rd, Dragnet will be heard at a new time over your NBC station. Consult your local newspaper for the new listening time. And now, speaking in behalf of the producers and the entire cast of Dragnet, we would like to take this opportunity to thank you for your many kind letters of encouragement and approval. Remember, next Saturday for Dragnet, this is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Episode number 13 of the soon-to-be smash hit series Dragnet from just before Labor Day weekend in 1949. 
You heard it here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog is the audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Tonight, we get to correct a great omission in our stewardship of the big broadcast. I looked it up, and in our first five and a half years, we've never featured a performance by Walter Hampton. It's strange, because not only was he arguably the greatest American stage actor of the first half of the 20th century, rivaled only by John Barrymore, he was also pretty active in radio, and one of these days, we'll try to get to a detective series in which he starred, The Adventures of Leonidas Witherall. But it was in the classics that Mr. Hampton shone brightest, My father boasted about having seen him do Hamlet in the 1920s, and for a long time he owned the character of Cyrano de Bergerac, starring in five different productions of the play on Broadway between 1923 and 1936. You can certainly say the role we're going to hear Walter Hampton in now is a classic, that of the philosopher Socrates. We know him mostly through the dialogues of his student Plato, and we do know that he was tried and sentenced to death in the year 399 before the Common Era. We're about to go back to that time now, thanks to the series CBS Is There. It's an episode called The Death of Socrates from March 14, 1948, and the series that would soon change its name to You Are There. This is John Daly in Athens. Will Socrates escape? That is still the big question here in the capital of Greece on this dying day in the first year of the 95th Olympia. I'm standing before the door of the prison behind which the friends of the condemned philosopher, so the rumor goes, are urging him to save himself from drinking the poison hemlock. Socrates has only to walk out of that prison and board a ship to freedom in exile, and the prayers of his friends and the hopes of his enemies will be answered. This dramatic situation, which is having significant repercussions throughout the Hellenistic world, is now inevitably approaching its climax. And in 30 Athens, minutes, we'll know 399 BC, CBS is there. Ancient Greece prays that Socrates will not die. CBS takes you back almost 2,347 years to that fateful day when one of the most enlightened democracies on earth trembled on the brink of a cup of poison. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. CBS is there. CBS is there, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon, with Walter Hamden portraying Socrates in this broadcast, is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now, Athens, 399 B.C., and John Daly. The rumor that the friends of Socrates were in the prison, pleading with him to take his freedom. CBS has been here on the spot, attempting to verify that rumor. Should Socrates agree to save himself, it would be a simple matter for his friends to whisk him away through this sea of white tunics worn by bystanders only too willing and too eager to fulfill the hope of escape. We're directly in front of the prison door, but the brilliant red and orange of the setting sun is blinding me, and I'm not at all sure that I would be able to say for certain who came out of the deep gloom of the death house. The crowd here of some three or four thousand men, women, children, and slaves is milling about me, cursing, praying, 
whispering in anxious groups. They know that when the sun sets, it will mark the moment when they may never again hear the voice of their beloved cross-examiner. His enemies, too, are anxious, for they're afraid. One of them has asked for an opportunity to speak to the public on our CBS microphone. He is the poet Miletus, Socrates' chief accuser at his trial. Miletus is not quite the most popular man in Athens today, and as a matter of fact, he's been hiding in the shade of the prison wall, and I'm going to wave him over here now the microphone. And it's just as Miletus feared, this crowd has recognized him. They're surrounding him, shaking their fists, threatening, shouting implications. Women are drawing at him. Miletus! Miletus! Let Miletus speak! Let him speak! All right, Miletus, what have you to say? Just one hope. With all good Athenians, I pray that Socrates will escape. But you who urged his death at the trial... It's true that I was the chief accuser of Socrates. But Socrates himself said I was of no consequence. You are nothing! I merely presented what some people have been saying against Socrates for 20 years. That he was a corrupter of the minds of youth. And did not believe in the gods of the city. Let me ask you, Miletus. Do you think Socrates will escape? I do not know. But if he does... He's just another poor mortal like all of us who's afraid to die. You mean you want Socrates to die? No, 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 all I said was that I'm not to blame. Blame the playwright Aristophanes. It was Aristophanes who first said that Socrates taught young men to cheat payment of their just debt, to deny the existence of the gods. I'm just a poor poet. Blame the rich playwright, don't blame me. The poor poet Miletus has just blamed the rich and successful playwright Aristophanes for the death sentence imposed on Socrates. Aristophanes is at a CBS microphone with Ken Roberts right now in the theater of Dionysius. He had agreed to make a statement for us, and as we still have no official news here as to whether Socrates will heed the counsel of his friends to escape, let's switch to Ken Roberts. This is Ken Roberts in the theater of Dionysius. The playwright Aristophanes is right here beside me. He heard what Miletus said, and by the smile on his face and the nodding of his head, I understand that he certainly would like to make a comment. Aristophanes? I take it that the poor poet Miletus was referring to my play, The Clouds. Yes, the comedy in which you lampoon Socrates as an evil character who ran a thinking shop. Yes, the shop was called the School of Very Hard Thinkers. Aristophanes, weren't the graduates of that school adept at the alleged corrupt and immoral practices that Miletus mentioned? Oh, to be sure. But that was the comedy situation. And at that, it wasn't one of my better comedies. No, to blame a single player, not a very good one at that, for the death sentence of so celebrated a philosopher as Socrates is preposterous. After all, I'm a playwright, not a hangman. But Aristophanes, Socrates himself said at his trial that your play contributed to the case against him. No, 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 no. He mentioned my play merely to brush it aside as of little consequence. Yes, but Aristophanes... Sir, one of my severest critics measures the failure of a play by the amount of food eaten during the performance. When The Clouds was first offered 24 years ago, the trash collectors worked overtime. On the opening night, Socrates himself enjoyed the... Jolly lampoon of himself and laughed heartily at the caricature. He even stood throughout the performance to give the first nighters a better shot should they wish to hurl a handful of ripe figs at him. I take it then that you're specifically denying Miletus's charge that your play was responsible for Socrates' death sentence. Oh, emphatically. The death sentence was imposed not by any mere play, but by the ignorant jury of 500. Socrates himself said that. 
What else would you expect of an uneducated majority who have rather an odd conception of democracy? What's your conception of democracy, Aristophanes? Well, it certainly isn't killing a man who happens to disagree with me. I believe with Socrates that the sovereignty of the people has become a sovereignty of politicians. Socrates also believes that government is an art, and as such, it requires more training, knowledge, and skill than any other. You cannot leave questions of politics and justice to chance, nor to the vote of the mob. And do you believe that the jury was acting as a mob? Of course. Five hundred men must decide a whole case in one day. And what may be momentary passion on one day may be passionate regress on the next. And that passionate regress may take another life. That's why Miletus is afraid. That's why he's throwing me to the mob. Thank you, Aristophanes. By the way, citizens, if you are hearing strange music behind our conversation here in the Dionysian Theater, I'd like to explain that it's the flute player quietly rehearsing his part in Aristophanes' play, Lysistrata. CBS also has a microphone at the home of Plato, the distinguished young philosopher and friend of Socrates. Plato also had agreed to make a statement for us. We have nothing from John Daly of any news about Socrates, so over to Plato's home and Don Hollenbeck. <coughs> Our CBS microphone is at the bedside of Plato. The 28-year-old philosopher has been ill these past few days. He says he objects strongly to Aristophanes' remark about democracy being responsible for Socrates' death sentence. Miletus is throwing Aristophanes to the mob. But I protest the manner in which Aristophanes is throwing democracy to the mob. <coughs> if Socrates dies, and I pray that the rumor that he will escape is true... It will not be democracy that is to blame. <coughs> Our many wars with Persia and in the Peloponnesus have exhausted us in body and soul. Two out of every three Athenian men have died in battle. Now, the fever of uh, fear runs high among us. We are confused, desperate. And so we seek someone to blame and sacrifice Socrates on the altar of our dying faith. It is not our jury system, as Aristophanes charges, that condemns Socrates. It is the prejudice of old men whose minds have been poisoned against him since they were children. The old men you speak of, Plato, they are the jurors? <coughs> yes. <coughs> but they are merely the symbol of old ideas that fear to be challenged cross-examined and perhaps exposed as no longer virtuous in our time. That is why the old men hate Socrates. <laughs> Socrates is like a gadfly on the backs of men. He forces them to cry out, Socrates, you make me acknowledge my worthlessness. He makes them say, I had best be silent, for it seems that I know nothing at all. And for that, he's hated well, Aristophanes is wrong. He's shameful. If Socrates dies, it will not be democracy that's to blame, but those who have lost faith in democracy. <laughs> Thank you, Plato. We have heard Miletus blame Aristophanes. Aristophanes blame the shortcomings of our democracy. And Plato blame our loss of faith in democracy. 
But no one has come forth to say that Socrates was justly condemned for the alleged crime of atheism and corrupting the minds of the youth. In order that you may have a chance to form your own opinions, CBS has prepared a special transcription of Socrates' trial, which we will play now. The next voice you hear will be the recorded voice of Socrates speaking to the jury at his trial one month ago in the amphitheater. Athenians, you say first, I do not believe in the gods, and then again that I believe in demigods. You might as well affirm the existence of mules and deny that of horses and animals. Come here, Miletus. Now, is it not a fact you think it very important for the younger men to be as virtuous as possible? I do. Well, come then, tell the judges who it is improves the younger men. Come now, you're accusing me of being the corrupter of youth. Reveal to the judges who improves them. They... They... Hmm. Uh, you see, Belitus, you have nothing to say. You are silent. Is not your silence conclusive proof you never gave a moment's thought to the matter? Come, tell us, good sir, who makes the young men better citizens? The Lord. My intelligent friend, that is not my question. What man improves the young who starts with the knowledge of the law? The judges here, Socrates. Why, what do you mean, Miletus? Can they educate the young and improve them? Certainly. All of them, or only some of them? All of them. <laughs> I hear that's good news. There's a great abundance of benefactors. And uh, do the listeners here improve them or not? They do. And do the senators? Yes. Well then, Miletus, the members of the assembly, is it they who corrupt youth, or do they all improve them too? They all improve them too. Then all the Athenians, it seems, make the young into fine fellows, except me. I alone corrupt them. Is that your meaning? Yes, most certainly that is my meaning. <laughs> it's absurd to believe that only one man is the corrupter of all, and that all the rest of the world is the improver of you. <laughs> I see present here in the assembly many of the young men whom it is said I gave them evil counsel. Miletus, call them forth to be your witnesses. Let them come forward and accuse me and support you. <laughs> Not one youth comes forward. Then let their fathers who have grown up and uh, are uncorrupted or their relatives come forward. <laughs> No one? You see, Miletus, that's because they know very well I speak the truth. And they know very well, Miletus, that you're a liar. 
strange indeed would be my conduct, O men of Athens, were I to desert the command of my God, to fulfill the philosopher's vision, to search into myself and other men, because I fear death. Men of Athens, I honor and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you. And while I have life and strength, I'll never give up the practice and teaching of philosophy. And whoever I meet, I'll say to him, Citizen of Athens, why do you care so much about money and honor and reputation and so little about wisdom and truth? Athenians, I believe in God as no one of my accusers believes. And to you and to God, I commit my cause to be decided as is best for you and for me. Then acquit me or not, but know I shall never alter my ways, not even if I have to die many times. This is John Daly again outside Socrates' prison door. The recording you've just been listening to was a specially prepared transcription of Socrates' defense made at his trial one month ago. The prison door has swung open, and Crito, Socrates' rich friend, has come out and with him is Antippe, the wife of Socrates. Xantippe is crying. Wailing would be better. Crito has his arm around her shoulder. Behind Xantippe is a slave with a baby in her arms, the youngest child of the 70-year-old Socrates. Here they come. Crito! Crito, will Socrates escape? Will Socrates escape? Escape! He must escape! What will become of me and my children? What good is it? Death? Please, please, Antipi, come away! Come away! No, no. I, I've been silent all my life. And he has talked and talked himself into all of this trouble. Please, Why didn't he keep his peace? Why didn't he stay at home? Like a good father and husband. Go home. Socrates wants you to go home. Home, home. He was never home. He left before the sun came up and returned long after we were asleep. A he woman. never brought money into the house. All he did was talk, talk. Woman, talk. this is shameful. Have you no respect? Respect? Did he have respect for me? Did he care for me and my three children? Talk, talk. But I told him, Socrates, this is the last time you will ever talk to your friend. Go now, woman, go. This is as far as I'll take you. Never talk Go, I say. That's what's painful. Xantippe is going off now. The crowd is parting, letting her through. What is it, Crito? What is it? She does give a true portrait of Socrates. Socrates' mission in life is to seek truth not to seek the easy comforts of home and heart. His friends have provided for his family so that the philosopher might be free to inquire into the nature of knowledge. Socrates is a war hero, a veteran. Is this the best that Athens has to offer a poor veteran who endured the hardships of war better than any lawful man? As for his children, we will provide for them after Socrates is gone. It is not gone. a matter of... What, what do you mean by gone, Crito? Will Socrates escape or will he die? Come with me. But where? Where Come are we to go? Come with me and you will know. All right, I will. As Crito turns toward the prison door, the crowd opens to let us through. Xantippe has increased the tension here. This crowd is restive, confused, and still no answer to the all-important question, will Socrates escape? 
That bang was the door slamming shut behind me. It is being locked now. Crito is moving down the corridor in the deep gloom to which my eyes are not as yet accustomed. And now, Crito is beckoning me into a cell, a high-walled, rock-ribbed chamber. And ironically enough, the slanting sun through the narrow window up there is shedding a rosy glow that seems to illumine and make of this chamber here a temple. There are four, five, six men standing by an empty couch, the prisoner's couch, I presume. Socrates doesn't seem to be here. Perhaps he has... Oh, no, no, Socrates is coming in now through another door and moving directly toward this microphone. He's going to talk to his friends once more. My dear friends, your anxiety to save me is most valuable. If it be right. I am still, as I've always been, a man who will listen to no voice but the voice of reason. Come, then. Let us reason together on whether or not I should escape. If I run away to exile, where could I go? Will not orderly men and cities look askance at me as a lawless person? Is that true, sir, or not? Yes, it's true, Socrates. And do you think life would be worth living in disorderly states like uh, Thessaly? What could I do there? I'd scarcely have the face to converse about virtue. But at least you could be with your children and your family, Socrates. What? Make them strangers to their own country? And the men of Thessaly, would they look upon the children of an escaped prisoner with good feeling or with contempt? Then leave your children here, sir. Your friends will take care of them. To be sure. But if they are real friends, Will they not take care of them as well, whether I go to Thessaly or to the other world? Certainly, Socrates. Escape then and live. That's exactly what my friends have been urging me to do. But if I escaped and they helped me, they'd be committing a crime against the state. And for that, the state would punish them. Their lands, their wealth, would be confiscated, and they might be banished as well. How, then, could banished or impoverished friends care for my wife and my children? No, my dear friends, that is not the way. A man should be guided only by the knowledge that he is doing right even though the consequences are death. Citizen must obey the laws of his city or his city will perish. The law of Athens condemned me and therefore it is right I perish rather than the city that gave me life. So you see, my friends, the voice of reason tells me I have no choice but to die. The jailer has come in with the cup of poisoned hemlock in his hand. He's trembling. His hand shakes as he approaches us. 
Socrates. I know I shall not find you unreasonable like other men. They are angry with me. They curse me when I bid them drink the poison because the authorities make me do it. I'm sure that you will not be angry with me. But with those you know are to blame. Friends, how courteous the man is. How generously he weeps for me. And the whole time I've been here, he has been constantly to see me and has been the best of men. And now, I wish to prophesy to those Athenians who have condemned me, for I am dying. And then it is that men have most prophetic power. I prophesy that as soon as I am dead, a far severer punishment than death will surely overtake my judges. They have done this thing, thinking they will be relieved from having to give an account of their lives. But if they think by putting men to death, they will restrain men from reproaching them for the evil of their lives, they are very much mistaken. It is much better for you and much easier not to silence reproaches but to make yourselves as perfect as you can. This is my parting prophecy to those who have condemned me. Of you, my friends, I have but one request to make. When my sons grow up, visit them with punishment, if need be, and vex them in the same way I have vexed you. If they seem to you to care for riches or for any other thing before virtue, and if they think they are something when they are nothing at all, reproach them as I have reproached you for not caring for what they should, and for thinking they are great men when, in fact, they are worthless. If you will do this, I and my sons will have received our desserts at your hands. And now, the time has come. to die and you to live whether life or death is the better is known to God and to God only wait Socrates I think the sun is upon the hills it is not yet set so do not hurry there is still time my dear Crito by drinking the poison a little later I think I shall gain nothing but my own contempt for so greedily saving up life which is already spent. The state of death is one of two things. 
either the dead man wholly ceases to be and loses all sensation. Or it is a migration of the soul unto another place. If death is like a sleep unbroken by any dreams, it would be a wonderful gain. For then it would appear that eternity is nothing more than a single night. But if death is a journey to another place, what greater good can there be than this to sit and converse with such gods as Orpheus and Homer? I am willing to die many times if this be true. I pray the gods my journey hence may be prosperous. That is my prayer. Be it so. Socrates has lifted the fatal cup to his lips. No. He is drinking the hemlock. It's impossible to describe. I can almost taste the poison on my own lips. And it's on the lips of all who are here, of all who are listening. It is Greece that dies, Greece that is dying, but Socrates will live as long as truth will live. And this fateful day in the first year of the 95th Olympiad will be remembered as long as men cherish knowledge above life itself. Athens, 399 years before Christ is born, Socrates dies. You have been listening to The Death of Socrates, another broadcast in the series CBS is There, produced and directed by Robert Louis Sheehan. The Death of Socrates was written by Joseph Liss and Robert Louis Sheehan, and the role of the philosopher was portrayed by Walter Hamden, with Oliver Cliff as Miletus, Arnold Moss as Aristophanes, Carl Swenson as Plato, Esther Sondergaard as Antippe, Charles Webster as Crito, and Philip Clark as the jailer. Next week... Philadelphia... July Accord, 1776. CBS is there. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. Some still current thoughts on democracy from The Death of Socrates, starring Walter Hampton and dramatized, or should I say reported, by CBS is there during the last week of winter in 1948. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to visit that one-of-a-kind detective now, San Francisco's Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. You don't even have to ask for her phone number. She's happy to give it to you. It's an adventure set in a time when the vast majority of Americans had never flown in an airplane. We'll hear a reference to the journalist Nellie Bly and her famous round-the-world journey, and we'll meet one of the few identifiably gay characters in old-time radio, Candy's photographer friend, Rembrandt Watson. From two days after Christmas in 1949 and NBC, it's Natalie Masters in Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. The 
National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson, Yukon 2, 8209. Just a moment. People can barge in on you at the... Now, where is that? That's better than nothing. Wait a second. Hi, Candy. Well, Mallard, my favorite foot flat. You caught me at the wrong time. Depends on your viewpoint. Shall I leave? No, no, come on in. What brings you up to Telegraph Hill, Mallard, dear? You. An interesting subject. Care for a drink? No, I'm on duty. You mean I'm being honored with an official call? Sort of. In that case, you can leave. No, seriously, Candy. Uh, you can help me, if you will. Well, the mountain coming to the mountain. Oh, you're not so large. Now you can leave. Only kidding. Uh, here's a pitch. An acquaintance of mine, Gordon Ayers, has a little problem on his hands. He needs your help. What is this? Oh, don't get excited, Candy. He's an insurance adjuster for an aviation outfit here in San Francisco. A couple of months ago, a guy and his wife took off in a private plane from one of those little airports down the peninsula and crashed. She burned to death. Ayers investigated and okayed the claim. A rather fancy amount. But his company doesn't like it. They don't think the crash was legit. It gets interesting. Well, he has to prove he was right. He came to me, wanted us to verify the facts. But we're the San Francisco police, and that's out of our jurisdiction. So? So, I mentioned you. Oh. He wants to meet you and have a little talk. If you can get the guy out of the soup, there's a nice little hunk of cabbage in it for you. Mallard, I'll take it, but there's something phony. Well, how do you mean, Kenny? This is the first time you've ever given me a helping hand in my private eyeing. Could be there's a reason. Could be a reason why I'm going to take the case, too. Must be the rabbit in me. I love to nibble on large hunks of cabbage. <laughs> Do you recall the lyrics from that old song, the one that goes, He floats through the air with the greatest of ease? Well, that's what happened to Candy Matson, one of San Francisco's better-known private investigators. She found herself floating through the air all right, but not with the greatest of ease. As a matter of fact, it was one of the most hair-raising experiences this pert little gal detective ever ran into. Well, why go on about it? Here she is to tell you about it herself. Well, that's the way it started. Inspector Ray Mallard, an old friend of mine, and that's all I can call him, darn it, an old friend of mine, dropped by and insisted I meet this Gordon Ayers, an aviation insurance adjuster. Two things induced me to take the deal, Mallard's big spaniel-like eyes and the money angle. It was right after Christmas, and I was a bit short. Mallard left, and I took the slip of paper he'd given me with Ayers' phone number on it, sat down by Amici's pet aversion, and doodled with the dial. Afternoon, Pacific Seaboard Fidelity. How do you do? Is there a Mr. Gordon Ayers there? Speaking. Inspector Mallard suggested I call you Mr. Ayers. This is Candy Matson. Oh, Miss Matson, yes. Happy to know you. Uh, I imagine Mallard explained my dilemma. Not in detail, no. Well, uh, the situation is quite complicated. I was wondering if we could meet and discuss it at length. Uh, can we get together this afternoon? If you say so, yes. Uh, time is of the utmost importance, Miss Matson. All right, you call it, Mr. Ayers. Splendid. I'm just leaving the office now. I have an appointment down the peninsula in an hour. Uh, do you have a car? Yes, I do. Uh, could you meet me at the San Mateo Airport, Cranston Flying Service? That's okay. Uh, about an hour and a half? Hour and a half. Fine. Goodbye, Miss Batson. 
This I didn't like. Already I was money in the hole. San Mateo Airport. Right on the water next to Bay Meadows, separated by the highway and a couple of salt marshes. Why should I have to meet the guy down there? Oh, me. Well, I drove down to the San Mateo Airport, found the Cranston Flying Service building, and got out of the car and waited. It was a nice afternoon, so I stood watching some of the planes take off and land. Pardon me, uh, you, uh, you aren't by any chance... Oh, no, of course not. No, I'm not by any chance. I'm Candy Matson. Are you Mr. Ayers? That's right. I didn't expect anyone quite so young. Well, did, did you want to talk, Mr. Ayers, or just stand there like a sea bass out of water? Oh, uh, pardon me. I want to talk, of course. Uh, by the way, have you ever flown? On commercial airlines, many times. Why? Uh, would you like to take a little hop this afternoon? Hmm? Well... What's that got to do with why I'm here? Plenty. It'll give you a picture of what I'm up against. In what do we fly, and who's going to be our guiding angel? Well, we'll probably fly in that Cessna over there, and I shall do the piloting. Well, I don't know. Have you been flying long? (laughs) About 20 years. Oh. And I also flew for Uncle Sam in the late mess over Germany. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Good. Let's go into the office. (laughs) Mother told me there would be days like this. Candy, she used to say, never leave the house without your parachute. We slipped through some prop wash, and I displayed a bit of silk that didn't belong to a parachute. Then into the building that housed the Cranston office. It was typical. A glass-topped counter with various flying trophies hung about the walls. Old propellers, silver cups, pictures of planes, and assorted certificates. Ayers plopped his wallet on the counter, and the chap proceeded to check him out. We went out onto the field and climbed into the plane. Then Ayers gunned the motor, and we were taking off. This is all very cozy, Mr. Ayers, but what's the idea? There's a very definite reason for it, Miss Matson. Uh, see that tower down there? Mm-hmm. No, no, down there toward Redwood City. Oh, yes, I see it. Oh, that's where we're going. About a mile east of that, there's a private airport run by a man named Folger. We're going to simulate a landing at that field. Well, I'm still not with it. I want you to notice all the physical qualities of that field as we come in for a landing. Notice the boundaries, the hazards, and the amount of free space a plane has, especially a light plane. You make me feel like a latter-day Nellie Bly. Okay, Mr. Ayers, let's go. I'll watch. Fascinated as I am by flying, I started looking around. The lower end of the bay on our left, the skyline to our right, and the bustling peninsula directly beneath us. I was shocked out of my reverie when the plane turned on its side and we cut sharply to our right and out over the bay. I thought Ares had lost control of the ship, but no, it was just a routine bank. Then another bank right and we were nosing in toward an airfield down and in front of us. Did I startle you? (laughs) A little. It's all right now that I know we're not playing tag with gravity. I'm going to cut the throttle now and nose in for a fake landing. I'm glad you told me. I'll know how to behave. Keep your eyes open, Miss Matson. You see any high-tension lines around the airport? No. Any fences, highways, or any other obstructions? No, no, I don't. Now, look, this is a normal landing. Mm-hmm. Now, if I were to sit the plane down here, I'd be about a mile from the waterfront. Then if I let the plane taxi the usual amount, I'd be up by those hangars. Any problems about that? 
None that I can see at the moment. Now look carefully. You see anything at all? Anything? Nope. If I didn't know better, I'd say we were in the Sahara. Okay. Then I'm going to give it the gun. Without the wheels touching the ground, we were climbing into the sky again and back toward the San Mateo airport. In less than minutes, Ayers brought the plane in for a neat landing, and we were over a very dry martini in a little spot in Burlingame. Okay, we've played charades long enough, Mr. Ayers. Cut me in on the plot. Oh, it's merely this. The man who owns that airport, Folger, was out flying with his wife one afternoon. Brand new plane, they came in for a normal landing. Just as we did. As far as I could figure out, the plane nosed over and caught fire. He escaped. His wife didn't. As the adjuster on the case, I voted straight accident and asked my company to pay the claim. They didn't like the idea. Well, you know how insurance companies are, Miss Matson. Naturally, they have to be suspicious. But in this case, their fears are groundless. Mm-hmm. What about Folger? Where is he now? Still running the airport. Now, let's get down to cases, Mr. Ayers. Just why did I get the free plane ride this afternoon? Well, I've known your friend Mallard for some time. I wanted him to sign this affidavit saying the field is perfectly safe for normal flying. He wouldn't do it. Naturally. Naturally, being with the San Francisco police. Then he suggested you. I have to have some licensed representative of the law's signature in order to clear my neck with my company. Here, you saw for yourself. Will you sign it? Whoa there, boy. Wait a minute. Feather your prop. You... You mean you won't sign it? I didn't say that. But I don't sign anything until I read the fine print, not even for my pal Mallard. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave now, after I have another olive and what goes with it. And then I'm going home. I'll call you tomorrow afternoon sometime. What, Miss Matson? Don't you... start to argue, Mr. Ayers. After my second olive, I get very stubborn. This got wilder by the moment. I was supposed to sign an affidavit clearing this joker on the basis of a 30-second buzz over a cow pasture. But oh no, I wasn't going to get caught with my flaps down, not for Mallard or anybody. I drove home to my penthouse on Telegraph Hill, dished up a warm tub, some warm soup, and then some warm blankets, and blacked out for the night. In the morning, I drove over to California Street near Old St. Mary's. I wanted to see a good luck piece of mine, Rembrandt Watson. Rembrandt's a photographer and tops in his profession now that he's not supplying the rent for all the bistros on the Barbary Coast. Candy, my lily, greetings. Uh, you know, if I was a G.I., I'd slug you for that. How are you, Rembrandt? Strictly, je suis très bon. I... That's French. Well, that's your opinion. And that's English. Oh, dove. You look as well scrubbed as Mount Diablo after a rainfall. <laughs> There's a romantic parallel. What brings you about on this lovely day? This lovely day. How would you like to go for a little drive, Ducky? Well, let's see. I was supposed to have tea with Diogenes Murphy, the honest Irishman. But he'll understand. Yes, I'd love it. Where are we going and why? San Mateo. And for why, I don't know. Well, that's San Mateo for you. <laughs> Anyone else going with us? No, just the two of us. Oh, good. Then I shan't have to ride in the tunnel. Wait just a moment, Dove. Whilst I toss Henry me great day in a brisket or two, and I'll be right with you. <laughs> Rembrandt fed his monster. We piled into the car and whooshed off to San Mateo. On the way down, I tried to plot a course of action. It wasn't easy. As my friend Ayers had said, the field was free from flaws, and where do you go from there? I was soon to find out. Is this our destination, Dove? That's right. 
arid little spot. What? Yes. Reminds me of the recruiting posters I used to see for the Foreign Legion. Come on, Rembrandt. I want to see something. What, dear? The other side of this hangar over here. What's over there? The burnt fuselage of a plane. Candy girl. Your sense of the macabre knows no bounds. Can't help it. This is business. Is that the one? I should imagine so. Hmm. Quite a mess, isn't it? Ooh, what a horrible way to go. Look it over, Rembrandt. Anything strike you as strange? Wait a moment. Yes. Why are there tattered pieces of fabric on this side of the plane and on the other, nothing but melted steel frame? Good point, Laddie Buck. And another thing. Look inside the cabin there. The safety belt on the other side. Intact. So it is. And I should sign affidavits yet. Wait till I see that mallard. Pardon me. Was there something you wanted? Oh, how do you do? I don't like his looks, dear. Did you want a ride? Is that why you're here? We have cubs, Cessnas, just about anything. No, no, nothing like that. Then, uh, what is it? I happen to own this airport, and I don't like people poking about. The owner? Well, then you must be Mr. Folger. Why, yes. That's right. Who are you? Santa Claus. A little late. Come on, Mr. Folger. Let's go into your office. I'm sure we have a lot to talk about. Folger led the way, and we went into a little Quonset hut type of building that served as the airport office. There were no trophies here, nothing but bareness. On one side was a pot-bellied stove, and on the other a mangy-looking parrot inside a cage. Folger motioned us to a couple of firehouse chairs and sat down himself in one that swiveled. Now then, what's this all about? I'm Candy Matson. This is my friend, Mr. Watson. I see. I'll be frank with you, Mr. Folger. I'm working with a Mr. Gordon Ayers of the Pacific Seaboard Fidelity Company. What? That's right. And they're holding up payment of your claim until Ayers can get a signed affidavit verifying his judgment. Oh, Fidelity! What in the... Pay no attention, Miss Matson. That fool parrot picks up anything you say. I must admit this is somewhat of a shock. I thought it would be. Now, is there anything you can do to help me? Pictures, diagrams, anything like that? Yes, I have a complete file, including a newspaper photograph of the crash itself. May I see them? Uh, newspaper! Quiet! Quiet, you idiot! Quiet, you idiot! Quiet, you idiot! Yes, you may see them. I keep them in my apartment in the city. If you'd uh, care to drop by this evening, I'll show them to you. Good. Supposing you give me a call when you get in town. Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Mm, I'll write that down. Candy Matson, Candy Matson. That's right, Polly. NC 98012. I said quiet. Oh, someday I'll wring that blasted bird's neck. The only reason I keep her around is because she belonged to my wife. There. I'll call you this evening, Miss Matson. <laughs> We left the place, got in the car, drove back down the road, and ducked into a little clump of trees, well hidden. Rembrandt looked at me as though I was losing my mind. But in about ten minutes, we heard the sound of a car coming from the airport. It roared past us, and at the wheel was Folger. That's all I wanted. I whipped us back to the Quonset hut, fully expecting the place to be locked tighter than a drum, but it wasn't. The door was wide open. What's the idea, Candy? Well, I'm not sure, Rembrandt. It's just a hunch. That open door, though, means we're going to have to work fast. Work fast? At what? My telephone number is Yukon, not 
N.C. something or other. I have a sneaking idea that somewhere in back in the dim recesses of that parrot's memory, I can get a key to this whole thing. Now, hello, Polly. Pretty Polly. Give me a pencil, Rembrandt. Pencil? Here. Thanks. Pretty Polly. Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Pretty Polly. Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Candy Matson, Candy Matson. NC, NC. NC, 98012. 98012, that's it. Thanks, Polly. Come on, Rembrandt, let's get gone with the wind. I left Rembrandt off at Diogenes Murphy's place on Van Ness Avenue and drove downtown. I ran into a present-day miracle by finding a place to park, then took the elevator up to the offices of the Pacific Seaboard Fidelity Company. I spotted Ayers' office and walked in. Well, Miss Matson, sit down, sit down. You're as good as your word. Thanks. Got anything for me? I may have, but first I want to know if you've got anything for me. Some little piece of information you've been holding out. From your own company, for instance? I don't quite understand you, Miss Matson. I'll come to the point, then. How in the name of Kitty Hawk could you honestly pay a claim on that wreck at Folgers Airport? The plane was obviously burned only on one side, the passengers. And also, the passenger's safety belt was still intact, tightly fastened. (laughs) You're a suspicious little thing, aren't you? Well, I'm like the insurance companies. I made the same mistake myself. That fuselage you saw was a training plane. It cracked up on a routine flight. No one hurt. The plane in which Mrs. Folger was killed was sold for scrap a week after my formal investigation. Oh, well, looks like I pulled the trigger on the wrong target. Oh, well, that's all right. As I said, I made the same mistake myself. However, I don't think it was advisable for you to go down there without consulting me first. Oh? Folger called me on the phone right after you left. You've given him a fine case of the jitters. Look, Mr. Ayers, I operate in my own manner. If I saw reason to give Folger's cow pasture the once-over, that's as it should be. And if that isn't agreeable to you, you can get another boy or, or girl. Oh, now, now, wait a moment. I'm sorry. No, no, you continue doing as you are. Good. Naturally, you want to be thorough about this thing, and I can't blame you. Right. Uh, now then, what's the next step, Miss Matson? I... Well, offhand, I really don't know. I'll call you first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning, fine. <laughs> I knew what the next step was, but I wasn't telling heirs or anybody. This was more than just working for a commission. I felt I was on to something now, and I was going to follow through. I called a friend of mine at an aviation insurance brokerage and got enough night work to keep me going until next St. Swithin's Day. I took my material home and started in. It was a history of every fatal plane crash in the United States for the past ten years. About eleven, I fixed some coffee. About two, I started to nod. Pinched my cheeks and snapped out of it. About four, I had some more coffee. Then at seven, just as the sky dawned, red streaked across the bay, I found what I wanted. Exactly what I wanted. It didn't tie together yet, not all of it. But the knot was now begun. It only needed a little tightening. I stretched out on the couch, set the alarm for nine, and woke up right on schedule. Once again, I got airs on the phone. Pacific Seaboard Fidelity, Ayers speaking. Good morning, Mr. Ayers, Candy Matson. Oh, good morning, Miss Matson. How do things look? Well, if you're referring to me, awful. I've been up all night. By the way, I wonder if we could make that flight again. Flight? Yes, over Folgers Airport. Only this time I'd like to make an actual landing. Oh, why, sure, that can be arranged. And I'd like Folger to come with us. I want him to describe just what happened as we go along. Oh, yes. 
this morning okay? The sooner the better. I'll call him right now. Have him get a plane ready. I'll uh, meet you there about noon. Now I had to work fast. I called Mallard, explained the situation, and he agreed to get one of his radio technicians and come along with me. We drove back down the peninsula, and I left them both at Cranston's flying service where they went to work. Then I continued to Folger's airport. It was a little before noon, and Folger had the ship out on the runway warming it up. Hi there, Mr. Folger. Seen anything of theirs? Yeah, he's in the office. He'll be right out. Come on, you can get in. Okay. Here comes theirs now. Here, let me give you a hand. Mm-hmm. You can sit up front, and I'll sit back here. All right. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Right on time, I see, Miss Matson. Yes. Got the plane gas, Folger? Yeah, I'll sit. Well, I guess we can take off. Here we go. Miss Matson, what's your plan? Just do what we did before. Circle out over the bay and come in for a normal landing. Okay. I'll bank her here. Fine. Now, is there any way for Folger to take the wheel? I I beg your pardon? I said, is there any way for Folger to take the wheel? Oh, Why, no, I don't think so. He's back there. That's because he can't fly, isn't that right? Isn't that right, Folger? What? What's she talking about, Ayers? I don't know. She must be out of her head. I'm not taking any chances with her. I'm going to set the ship down right now. The way you set it down with Folger's wife in it? So she burned beyond recognition? Why, you... I can get the whole story, Ayers. Look at Folger, white as a sheet. He's ready to talk right now, aren't you, Folger? Yes. I'll talk. I'll tell everything. Including the story about the same kind of crash in Toledo, Ohio? All right, you two, don't move. I assure you this gun is very deadly. You, Fulcher, open the starboard door. Go on, open it. Gordon, you don't know what you're doing. Oh, yes, I do. And neither one of you are going to live to tell about it. Go on, Fulcher, get up by the door. Go on. Gordon, please don't. Don't. What a fine rat you are, Ayers. You're next, Miss Matson. Just a little too darn smart for your own good, aren't you? I should have known better than to try to use a dame for the fall guy. Go on, stand up by the cabin door. Sure. Okay. I'll stand up by the cabin door. Well, candy girl, let's see you get yourself out of this one. I hope Mallard's still listening to this mic. Mallard. Mallard, you big dumb cop, can you hear me? I can hear you, Candy. What's wrong? I had to tap airs over the head. What do I do now? I don't know how to fly this thing. Uh, uh, wait a minute. I'll put Cranston on. Miss Matson, listen carefully. Take the wheel and hold it in the middle. Get your nose up a little. That's it. How am I doing? Why? Now look down at the horizontal bar at your feet. Press the left one ever so slightly and turn the wheel left at the same time. Like this? 
Keep your nose up. Up, so it's just above the horizon. That's it. Keep it there. Better. Now straighten both the bar and the wheel. Slowly. Slowly. I've got it. Now you're headed towards San Mateo Airport. Now try to drift off to your right a little, using the opposite technique. Better? You're doing fine. Hang on, Candy. You're going great. Now look for the protruding gadget on the right side of the dashboard. Mark throttle. Push it in about a third of the way. I'm falling. Mallard, I'm falling. No, you're not. Just do as I say. You're coming in for a landing. Now, don't move the wheel or the bars until I tell you to. Oh, the ground's coming up awfully fast. You're coming in just right. Now, ready? Pull back the wheel just a little. No, not too much. That's it. Okay, gal. Right her on in. My knees feel like I did the conga from here to L.A., but otherwise I'm all right. Uh, the boys will take care of theirs. Come on, we've got a report to make. Report? Sure. I sicked you on to this airs guy purposely. What? Sam Mateo didn't want to scare the guy off until they solved the case, so we cut you in on the deal without you knowing it. Candy, you did it. We've got a recording of the whole thing made over the plane's radio. Congratulations, Candy. You'll get a nice hunk of dough for this. Nice hunk of dough of all the dirty tricks. Mallard, you... I... Oh, what's the use? I can't bore you out now. I'm airsick. It was a very slick deal. Ayers was a top-notch insurance boy. About five years ago, he met up with Folger. This was in Toledo, Ohio. Folger was married to a very wealthy gal, but couldn't get his hands on any of the money. Ayers hit upon a pretty little method of mayhem back there. He took out a license plate under Folger's name, fireproofed his half of the plane, also the passenger's safety belt. Then one fine day, he came in for a landing, deliberately pancaked the ship, left the motor running, and let the crate burn, with Folger's wife in it. They collected plenty. In those days, they had the names of Smith and Jones or something like that, and Ayers was the insurance adjuster. They moved on to California, took the names of Ayers and Folger, and set about to do an encore on the same old act. Folger met another wealthy gal, married her, and set himself up in the airport business. Ayers got himself a job with a San Francisco insurance outfit, and voila, they were ready for another crack-up. My suspicions were first lit up when I saw Ayers' face. He had more scars and stitches than a well-seasoned hockey player. And that broken-up fuselage behind Folger's airport, that was another giveaway. It was a test model they'd used to make sure their plans were all set. But the real giveaway was the parrot. What a memory. NC-98012 was the license number of the plane that crashed in Toledo, killing Folger's first wife. The parrot was also her pet, and Folger had kept it for sentimental reasons. He shouldn't ought to have done it, though, because through the parrot I traced the whole thing. It was a nice one-time racket, but they should have quit before the police tripped them up. Oh, yes, Ayers was convicted. 
and Pacific Seaboard Fidelity rewarded me quite handsomely. But that mallard, deliberately using me for bait. <laughs> I got even with him, though. I made him take me deep-sea fishing about a week later. Oh, did he get sick. Seasick. And I just stood there and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Listen again next week at this same time. For excitement and adventure, just dial... Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. <laughs> Heard tonight were Lou Tobin as Ayers, Harry Bechtel as Folger, and Jack Cahill as Cranston. Henry Leff as Inspector Ray Mallard, and Jack Thomas plays the part of Rembrandt Watson. The program stars Natalie Masters as Candy and is written and produced by Monty Masters. Sound effects were created by Bill Brownell and Jay Rendon. Eloise Rowan is heard at the organ. The characters in tonight's story are entirely fictitious. Any resemblance to actual people is purely coincidental. The program came to you from San Francisco. Dudley Manlove speaking. You are tuned for the stars on NBC. Candy Matson, Yukon 28209, with an adventure from December 27, 1949. And from the big broadcast, I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Earlier tonight, we heard Orson Welles lampooning his own reputation as an all-powerful creative genius. Well, that renown did have a basis in fact. Mr. Wells was one of the greatest artists in radio history, helping to invent the form of radio drama with some stunning innovations. The breaking news-style updating of H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds is the most famous example, but we're about to hear another one. When Orson Welles brought his Mercury Theater stage troupe to radio in the late 1930s, he began with a series he called First Person Singular. He realized the enormous power of one character speaking directly to one listener. The pronoun I, he told an interviewer at the time, is more important in radio than in any other medium. And he followed through. He and his collaborator, John Houseman, staged their performances without a live studio audience. They thought a live audience would distract the listener. We're going to hear one of those very first Mercury Theater shows, and it presents three short stories by three very distinguished writers, far better known and properly celebrated a hundred years ago than they are today. The great American writer Sherwood Anderson, the British author H. H. Monroe, whose pen name was Saki, and whom inexplicably Mr. Wells refers to as H. K. Monroe, and the Dane Carl Ivald best known for his novels and fairy tales. Of course, Orson Welles stars in two of the three stories. His longtime collaborator Bernard Herrmann does the music, and the members of the troupe include Ray Collins, whom you may remember as Lieutenant Tragg in TV's Perry Mason. From August 8, 1938, and CBS, here is Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. <laughs> 
Our theatrical organization has done more in recent years to stimulate interest in the American stage than the Mercury Theater, whose outstanding productions of last winter under the direction of Orson Welles were the sensation of the theatrical season. Julius Caesar in Modern Dress, The Shoemaker's Holiday, Mark Blitzstein's The Cradle Will Rock, Bernard Shaw's Heartbreak House, proved to the public the vitality and genius of this new organization. This summer, the Columbia Network introduced Orson Welles and his company for the first time to radio. And tonight we present the Mercury Theater on the air in the fifth broadcast of its unique new series, Dramatizing Famous Narratives by Great Authors. CBS again welcomes Mr. Wells and his associates to Columbia stations and to the stations of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And here is Orson Welles to tell you about these stories himself. Mr. Wells. Good evening. Tonight, as you were duly warned last week, we are trying out something altogether new. We're telling three stories instead of one. Three short stories instead of a single long one. Stories about love and ghosts and horse races. Three stories in the first person singular about young people for grown-ups. I'm a Fool by Sherwood Anderson is the first of the three. It began at three o'clock one October afternoon. As I sat in the grandstand, the fall trotting and pacing meet Sandusky, Ohio. It was a good heart jolt for me, and it all came about through my own foolishness, too. Summer before, I'd left my hometown with a fellow called Bert French with two horses that was campaigning through the race meets that year. Gee, it was fun. We had Bucephalus, a big black pacing stallion that could do 209 or 210 if he had to, and a little gelding called Dr. Fritz that never lost a race all fall, and Bert wanted him to win. Gee whiz, it was fun. We got to a county seat town, maybe say on a Saturday or Sunday, and the fair began the next Tuesday, and you took your horses to the track and fed them and got your good clothes out of a box and put them on, and the town was full of farmers gaping because they could see you were horse race people, and you went into a saloon, the two of you, Bert and I, and all the dudes came and stood around asking questions, and all you did was to lie, and lie all you could about what horses you had, and I said I owned them, and then some fellow would ask us to have a drink of whiskey with them, and Bert would lead him on. Uh, uh, what was that you said, sir? I asked you, gentlemen, if you'd have a drink with me. Oh, well, all right. I'm agreeable to a little nip. Tell you what I'll do, sir. I'll split a quart with you. <laughs> Gee whiz. That isn't what I want to tell my story about. We got home late November, and I promised Mother I'd quit the races for good. There's a lot of things you got to promise a mother because she don't know any better. I got a job driving a laundry van, and then, as I started to tell you, the fall race came to Sandusky. I got the day off, and I went. Had on my good clothes and my new-bound derby hat and a stand-up collar. I had $40 in my pocket and three twenty-five cent cigars and a drink of whiskey inside me that was bought me at the West House by a fellow with a cane and a Windsor tie. Gee, it was fun being on a track again. I looked around for Bert French, and there he was, standing around with his horses. Hello, Bert. Why, hello, Joe. How you been, Bert? Never better. You got any money, Joe? Sure. 
How'd you like to watch it grow? Like it's fine, Bert. All right, come over here then. I'll tell you something. Listen, Joe. In the second race, the 218 pace, there's a horse I'm handling, Abdul Ben Hammond. There he is, number seven. That gelding's as fast as street, Joe. Belongs to a fellow called Mather in Marietta, Ohio. We got him marked at 221, but he can step in 08. Gee. In the first heat, don't you touch him. He'll go around like an oxen hitched to a plow. After that, you go right down and lay on your pile. Well, thanks, Bert, a lot. Have a cigar? Well, thanks, Joe. Well, sir, I went and bought myself the best seat I could get right in the grandstand. I didn't go in for any of those boxes. That's putting on too many ears. Well, right in front of me in the grandstand that day, right in front there was a fellow with a couple of girls. And they was about my age. The young fellow was a nice guy, all right. He had his sister with him and another girl, and the sister looked around over his shoulder accidentally at first, not intending to start anything. She wasn't that kind. And her eyes and mine happened to meet. You know how it is. Gee, she was a peach. She had on a soft dress, kind of blue stuff, and I blushed when she looked right at me, and so did she. She was the nicest girl I ever seen in my life. She wasn't stuck on herself. She could talk, you know, proper grammar without being like a school teacher or something like that. But what I mean is, she was okay. Pretty soon the horses came out for the 218 pace, and there was Bert's horse in among the rest. Where did they get on this side? What do you say? You know as much about them as I do. Who wants to one of them with a long tail? Hank, ma'am. That mare couldn't beat a streetcar. Well, they looked up kind of surprised. But they didn't seem mad, and anyway, I'd done it now, and I might as well go on. There's a horse in this race, number seven, that's as fast as streak. Adro Ben Hammett. Is that a horse's name? That's right. Admiral Ben Hammond. But look, don't you go letting on this first heat, because don't bet on him, because he'll, he'll pace it like a lame cow. You see if he don't. But when the first heat is over, go right down, lay a pile on Admiral Ben Hammond. He'll come right out and skin him alive. Will he really? That's a dope. Well, that's what I told her. Gee, you should have seen the way they looked at me. And then you know what she did? She whizzed. She asked this man that was with her, Wilbur. Well, she asked him, and there was a fat man sitting beside the little girl that had looked at me twice by this time. And I had heard both blushing, and... What did that young fellow do but have the nerve to turn and ask the fat man to get up and change places with me so I could sit with his crowd? I want you to meet Miss Eleanor Woodbury. Pleased to meet you. And this is my sister, Lucy Wilson. My name's Wilbur. I suppose it was the having such swell name. Got me off my trolley, and... And that girl, you know how a fella is, is something in that kind of nice clothes and the kind of nice eyes she had and the way she looked at me a while before over her brother's shoulder and me looking back at her and both of us blushing. I couldn't show up for a boob, could I? I, I made a fool of myself, that's what I did. Glad to know you all. My name's Walter Mathis. From Marietta, Ohio. Have a cigar, Wilbur? Thanks. And you really think this horse is going to win, Mr. Mather? Then I told him all the smashingest lie you ever heard. I said my father owned this horse. You know, Boo Ben Adam. 
It was supposed to be a secret because our family was proud and never gone in for racing that way. After Ben Hammond, I mean. Here's what I think of that horse, Wilbur. Will you do me the favor when you go down to place these 30 bills on Admiral Ben Hammond at whatever odds you can get? Just about then, the bell for the first heat come off. And sure enough, Admiral Ben Hammond went off his stride up the back stretch and looked like a wooden horse or a sick one came in to be last. See, folks, what I tell you? Like a lame cow. You certainly were right, Mr. Mason. Then this Wilmer West went down to the betting place onto the grandstand and this Miss Woodbury with him and... and... Lucy Weston and I was left alone together, like on a desert island. Hot 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 Gee, Miss Lucy. Gee, I... I'm not sure you're a place down Marietta. It's, it's on a hill, a great old red brick house with a stables behind it, way up on a hill, up above the Ohio River. I like rivers. Her eyes were shining, and then she kind of, with her shoulder, you know, kind of touched me. Not just tucking down, I, I don't mean that. You know how a woman can do. They get close, but not getting gay either. You know what they do. Yes, I began to wish I was on the square with her and to see what a fool I'd been, but there wasn't any way of getting myself on the square now. There ain't any Walter Mathers, like I said to her, and there ain't ever been one, but if there was, I bet I'd go to Marietta, Ohio, and shoot him tomorrow. And then Wilbur Weston came back with Miss Woodbury, and he'd gone and bet $50 on his horse, and the girls had gone put in $10 each of their own money, too. Gee, I was sick then, but came out okay. Then Adam stepped the next three heats like a bushel of spoiled eggs going to market before they could be found out. There it goes! Help it in, Mr. Mathers. Look at him coming up. Admiral Van Hammond. Oh, he's done. There he is. Coming up. Admiral Van Hammond. got nine to two for our money. After the race, we had a hack downtown, and Wilbur stood us a swell supper at the West House and a bottle of champagne besides, and there was I with that girl, big boot that I am. She wasn't saying much, and I wasn't saying much either. One thing I know, she wasn't stuck on me because of the lie about my father being rich and all that. There's a way, you know. Crap so mighty, there's a kind of girl you see just once in your life and you don't get busy and make hay, then you're gone for good and all you might just as well go jump off a bridge because what it means is you want that girl to be your wife and you want nice things around her like nice flowers and swell clothes and you want her to have the kids you're going to have. You want good music played and not brag time. Gee whiz. Well, there's a place over near Sandusky across a kind of bay, and it's called Cedar Point. And after we'd had supper, we went over to it in a launch, just the four of us, by ourselves. What time does train leave, Wilbur? 10.40. And is that the last train? Yeah, that's the last train. Oh, sure. Well, over at Cedar Point, we didn't stay around where there was a gang of common cattle at all. 
the big dance halls and dining places for yaps, and there was a, a beach you could walk along and get where it was dark. We went there. She didn't talk hardly at all. And neither did I. I was thinking how glad I was my mother was all right. Always made us kids learn to eat with a fork, a table, and not spill soup, and not be noisy and rough like a gang you see around a racetrack, you know, that way. Hey, Lucy! Lucy, we're going up the beach away. Are you coming? Go on ahead. We'll wait for you here. I feel kind of tired, don't you? Hmm. Yeah. I guess so, Miss Lucy. Why don't we sit down a while? It's nice here. Lucy and I sat down in a dark place where there was some roots, old trees, and the water had washed up. Feel that wood, how smooth it is. It's like silk. Yeah. And there was a watery smell. And the night was like... as if you could put your hand out and feel it. So warm and soft and dark and sweet like an orange. After that, the times when we had to go back in the lodge and they had to catch their train wasn't well, nothing at all. It went like winking your eyes. Lucy! Lucy, it's nearly ten! Lucy! I've got to go. We've got to go to the train now. Will you kiss me goodbye? She was most crying then. But she never knew nothing I knew. She couldn't be so busted up as I was. Gee whiz. Sometimes I hope I have cancer and die. Guess you know what I mean. We went in the launch across the bay to the train like that. And it was dark, too. What are you thinking about? She... Only she knew. You know what I was thinking? What? I was thinking... You and I could get out of this boat right this minute and walk on the water. Sounded foolish, all right. But I... But I knew what she meant. Quick, we were right at the depot. There was a big gang of yaps crowded milling around like cattle, and how could I tell her? It won't be long because you'll rise and I'll answer you. I ain't got a chance like a hay barn a fire, a swell chance I got to answer her. Yeah, and maybe she'd write me down at Marietta that way, and the letter'd come back. And stamped on the front of it by the USA. There ain't any such guy. Or something like that. Ever they stamp on a letter that way? Bye, Walter. Thanks for the tip off. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. 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 train went. I busted out and cried like a kid. Gee, I could have run after that train 
and made man of war look like a freight train after a wreck, but socks are mighty. What's the use? Did you ever see such a fool? Me trying to pass myself off for a big bug in a swell. To her. Did you ever see such a fool? I'll bet you what. If I had an arm broke right now or a train had run over my foot, I wouldn't go to no doctor at all. I'd go sit down, let it hurt and hurt. That's what I do, big fool that I am. I'll bet you what. I'll bet you if I hadn't drunk that booze, i never been such a boob as to go tell such a lie. A lie that couldn't ever be made straight to a lady like her. I wish I had that fellow right here that bought me that drink. I'd smash him for fair gosh darn his eyes. He's a big fool, that's what he is. If I'm not another, you just go and find me one and I'll quit working and be a bum. Give him my job. I don't care for working and earning and saving it for no such boob as myself. The second story of tonight's program by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater is... The Open Window by Saki. <clears throat> My name is Frampton Nuttall. <clears throat> I am a very nervous man. The doctors are not entirely in agreement in the matter of my diet. They have agreed to a man in ordering me complete rest. An absence of mental excitement, an avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise. It was the doctor's idea that I should go to the country for a week for my health. But it was my sister, <clears throat> Matilda Nuttall, who insisted on Mole Barrington. I know how it will be, Frampton. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul. And your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I'm not given to moping, Matilda. Oh, yes, you are, Frampton. I shall give you letters to all the people I know in Mole Barrington. Some of them, as far as I can remember, are quite nice. You will call on them. That is how I came to visit Mrs. Sappleton. Hello. I would like to see Mrs. Sappleton. My name is... <coughs> Frampton Nuttall. Really? I have a letter to Mrs. Sappleton from my sister. I see. Won't you come in and sit down? I was led into the drawing room by a young lady of about 15 with unnaturally long legs, a great many freckles on her face, and gray eyes. I'll tell my aunt you're here. What did you say your name was? Nuttall. Frampton Nuttall. I'll tell my aunt, Mr. Nuttall. I wondered whether Mrs. Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An indefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. A large French window opened on the garden. Through it I could see a well-kept lawn. And beyond that, the darker green of the fens. The scene was delightfully peaceful. I'm sorry, Mr. Nuttall. My aunt will be down presently. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Oh, yes. Mr. Nuttall? Yes? Do you know many of the people around here? Not a soul. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. 
Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, Mr. Nuttall? Only her name and address. Oh. My aunt's great tragedy happened just three years ago. Three years ago. That would be since your sister's day. A tragedy? Yes. We try not to talk about it. You may wonder why we keep that window open on an October afternoon. Why, it's quite warm for the time of year. That's not why we keep it open, Mr. It uh, hasn't anything to do with the uh, tragedy, has it? Yes, it has, Mr. Nuttall. Out through that window, three years ago today, my aunt's husband and the two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back. In crossing the moor to their favorite snipe shooting ground, they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of fog. It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Oh. Poor Aunt always thinks they'll come back someday. They and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening so that it is quite dusk. Oh, poor dear aunt. She often told me how they went out. Her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm. And Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing, Big Bird, Bertie, why do you bound like this? I said, Bertie, why do you bound? As he always did to tease her. Because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know... Sometimes on still, quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they'll all walk in through that window. It was a relief when Mrs. Sapperson came into the room. Oh, I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting, Mr. Nuttall. I do hope Vera has been amusing you. She has been very interesting. It's so nice of you to come and see us, Mr. Nuttall. I do hope you don't mind the open window. Why, uh... No, I... No. Open window? No. My husband and brothers will be home directly from hunting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they make a fine mess over my poor carpet. So like you men folk, isn't it? Do you hunt, Mr. Nuttall? It was horrible the way the poor woman's mind dwelt on the topic of hunting. I looked up and the girl's eyes caught mine. She shook her head sadly. I tried desperately to change the subject. I told her that I was in Mole Barrington for my health. But I was conscious that Mrs. Sappleton was giving me only a fraction of her attention, and her eyes were constantly staring past me to the open window and the lawn beyond. Then, suddenly, I saw her stiffen. She was staring at the window. Yeah. Oh. Here they are now, just in time for tea. I turned toward the niece. The child was staring through the open window with dazed horror in her eyes. I turned and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn toward the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them carried a white waterproof coat hung over his shoulders. The tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they... They near the house. Uh, 
Oh, good heavens. Oh, good heavens. Help! 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 Lucy, who on earth was that bolted off the drive as we came in? That was Mr. Nuttall. I can't imagine what came over him. I expect there was a spaniel that did it. Mr. Nuttall told me he had a horror dog. Vera? Yes, Aunt Lucy. Vera, what did you say to Mr. Nuttall before I came into the room? Nothing, Aunt Lucy. Mr. Nuttall did all the talking. I didn't say anything. He told me the strangest thing. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs and had to send them out in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above his head. Enough to make anyone lose their nerve out of You are listening to the Columbia Network's presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in three famous short stories. You have just heard the first two of these, I'm a Fool and the Open Window. We will present the third story in a moment. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Columbia Network is presenting three famous short stories. And now the Mercury Theater and Orson Welles resume with My Little Boy by Carl Ewald. My 
little boy is given a penny by Mary the cook. With instructions to go to the baker's and buy some biscuits, I stand at my window and see him cross the street in his slow way and with bent head. Only he goes slower than usual with his head bent more deeply between his small shoulders. He stands long outside the baker's window where there is a confused heap of lollipops and chocolates and sugar sticks. Then he lifts his hand, opens the door, disappears, and presently returns with a paper bag, eating with all his might. And I, who haven't been praised of myself, been a thief in my time, go all over the house and give my orders. My little boy enters the kitchen. Put the biscuits on the table. He stands still for a moment and looks at Mary and at the table and at the floor. Then he goes into the living room where his mother is sitting. You're quite a big boy now that you can buy biscuits for Mary. His face is very long. He says nothing. He comes quietly to me. Sits on the edge of a chair. Hello. Hello. You've been over the way at the baker's. Don't you buy at the baker's? Lollipops? Oh, well, I never. What fun. I had some lollipops this morning. Who gave you the money this time? Mary. Really? Well, Mary, it's certainly fond of you, isn't she? Remember the lovely ball she gave you for your birthday? Father. Mary told me to buy a penny's worth of biscuits. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> it's very quiet in the room. My little boy cries bitterly, and I look anxiously before me and stroke his hair. Well, you fooled Mary badly. She needs those biscuits, of course, for cooking. She thinks they're on the kitchen table, and when she goes to look, she won't find any. Mother gave her a penny for biscuits. Mary gave you a penny for biscuits, and you go and spend it on lollipops. What are we going to do? If only we had a penny, then you could rush across the street and fetch the biscuits. Father, there's a penny on Mother's writing table. Oh, is there really? No, I'm afraid that's no use to us, my little boy. That penny belongs to Mother. The other was Mary's. People are so terribly fond of their money and get so angry when you take it from them. I can understand that, for you can buy such an awful lot of things with money. You can get biscuits and lollipops and toys and clothes and half the things in the world. And it's not so easy to make money either. Now, Mary, she has to spend the whole day cleaning rooms and cooking dinner and washing up before she gets her wages. And out of that, she has to buy clothes and shoes. And you know she has a little girl whom she has to pay for at Mrs. Olson's. She must certainly have saved very cleverly before she managed to buy you that ball for your birthday. Father, haven't you got a penny? And here's my purse. Look for yourself. Not a penny in it. Spent the last this morning. We walk up and down. We sit down and get up and walk about again. We're very gloomy. We're bowed down with sorrow and look at each other with great perplexity. Hmm, there might be one hidden away in a drawer somewhere. Oh, yes. <clears throat> only, only we could find a penny. Oh, here's one. Hurry, look, Father. A penny. Hooray. It's a penny. Hurry now. You go this way through my door. Then run back quickly up the kitchen stairs with the biscuits and put them on the table. 
I'll call Mary so that she doesn't see me. We won't tell anybody. He's down the stairs before I've done talking. I run after him. Hey there. Hey. Wasn't it a splendid thing we found that penny? Oh, yes, yes. And he laughs for happiness. And I laugh too. His legs go like drumsticks across to the baker's. From my window, I see him come back, running with red cheeks and glad eyes. He's committed his first crime. He's understood it. He has not the sting of remorse in his soul, nor the black badge of forgiveness on his cap. The mother of my little boy and I sit until late at night talking about money, which seems to us the most difficult matter of all. For our little boy must learn to know the power of money and the glamour of money and the joy of money. He must earn much money and spend much money. Yet there were two people yesterday who killed a man to rob him of $4.37. My little boy is engaged to be married. She's a big, large-limbed young woman, three years his senior. Her name is Gertie. By a misunderstanding, however, which is pardonable at his age and, moreover, quite explained by Gertie's appearance, he calls her Dirty. Little Dirty, and by this name she will be handed down to history. I want a girl for myself. Quite right, my boy. Either I know very little of mankind or he has made a fortunate choice. No one is likely to take Dirty from him. Like the gentleman that he is, he at once brings the girl home to us and introduces her. Owing to the formality of the occasion, he does not go by the kitchen way as usual, but rings the front doorbell. I open the door myself. There he stands on the mat, hat in hand, with Dirty, his bride, and with radiant eyes. Father, this is little Dirty. She's my sweetheart. We're going to be married. Mm, that's what people usually do with their sweethearts. Come in, Dirty. And be welcomed by the family. Wipe your feet, Dirty. The mother of my little boy doesn't think much of the match. Why, she's a perfectly dreadful little thing. I have a good mind not to let her in the house. We can't do that. I'm not in ecstasies over her either, but it's not at all certain that it will last. Yes, but... Do you remember what little use it was when your mother forbade me the house? <laughs> we used to meet in the most incredible places and kiss each other terribly. I can quite understand that you've forgotten, but you ought to bear it in mind now that your son's beginning. My dear. Besides, I must remind you that it is spring. And so dirty is accepted. But when she calls, she is first to undergo a short quarantine while the mother of my little boy washes her and combs her hair thoroughly. Dirty doesn't like this, but the boy does. He looks on with extraordinary eagerness. No, no. Look. Mother, look. There. There's a place you haven't washed. There's a good deal of cruelty in love. He himself hates to be washed, or perhaps it is merely his sense of duty. Last Friday, in cold blood, he allowed Dirty to wait outside on the step for half an hour until his mother came home. Another of his joys is to see Dirty eat. I can quite understand that. Here is something worth looking at. The mother of my little boy and I would be glad, too, to watch her if there were any chance of giving Dirty her fill. But there is none. 
least not with my income. When I see all that food disappear without as much as a shade of satisfaction coming into her eyes, I tremble for the young couple's future. But he is cheerful and unconcerned. My little boy and I have had a very interesting walk in the park. There was a mouse which was irresistible. There were two sparrows, husband and wife, who built their nest right before our eyes, and a snail which had no secrets for us. And there were flowers, yellow and white, and green leaves, which told us the oddest adventures. Now we are sitting on a bench, digesting our impressions. What was that? Well, that was the lion in the zoo. What's the zoo, Father? The zoo, my boy, is a horrid place where they lock up wild beasts who've done no wrong. Animals who are accustomed to walk about freely in far-off countries where they come from. The lion is there. You just heard him roaring. He's so strong that he can kill a policeman with one blow of his paw. He has great haughty eyes and awfully sharp teeth. They caught him one day in a trap, tied him with ropes and dragged him here and locked him in a cage with iron bars to it. The cage is about half the size of the kitchen at home. And there the king walks up and down, up and down, and gnashes his teeth with sorrow and rage and roars that you can hear him miles away. And outside his cage stand curious people who laugh at him because he can't get out, eat them up, and poke their sticks through the rails and tease him. Would he eat them up if he got out? In a moment. He can't get out, can he, Father? No. That's awfully sad. He can't get out. Well, Father, let's go and look at the lion. I pretend not to hear. And go on to tell him of the strange birds there. Great eagles that used to fly over church steeples and over the highest trees and mountains. Now they are sitting in cages on a perch like canaries with clipped wings and blind eyes. I tell him of gulls which used to fly all day long over the stormy sea. Now they splash about in a puddle of water screaming pitifully. I tell him of wonderful blue and red birds which in their youth used to live among wonderful red and blue flowers in forests a thousand times bigger than this park. Now they sit there in very small cages and hang their beaks while they stare at tiresome boys in dark blue suits and black stockings and rubbers and sailor hats. Are these birds really blue? Sky blue and utterly broken-hearted. Father, can't we go and look at the birds? I don't think we will. Why should more silly boys go and look at them? You can't imagine how it goes to one's heart to look at those poor captive birds. Father, I should so much like to go to the zoo. Take my advice and don't. The animals there are not the real animals you see. They are ill and ugly and angry because of their captivity, and their longing and their pain. But I should like so much to see them. Now, let me tell you something. To go to the zoo costs Five cents for you and ten cents for me. That makes fifteen cents altogether. That's an awful lot of money. We won't go there now, but we'll buy the biggest money box we can find. One of those money boxes shaped like a pig. Then we'll put fifteen cents in it, and every Thursday we'll put fifteen cents in the pig. By and by, that'll grow to be quite a fortune. Such a fortune that when you're grown up, you can take a trip to Africa yourself, under the desert, 
and hear the wild, the real lion roaring and tremble just like the people tremble down there. Father, I'd rather go to the zoo now. Shall we go and have some ice cream at Jostis? I'd rather go to the zoo. You're not going to the zoo. Now we'll go home. And home we go, but we're not in a good temper. Of course, I get over it and buy him an enormous money box pig. We put the money into it, and he thinks that most interesting. But later in the afternoon, I find him in the nursery, engaged in a piteous game. He's built a cage in which he has imprisoned the pig. He is teasing it and hitting it with his whip. You can't get out and bite me, you stupid pig. You can't get out, do you hear? You can't get out. You can't get out. <laughs> at the visit, and my little boy is sitting at her feet. She has buried her fingers in her hair and is reading, reading, reading. Thou shalt not fear, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Nor his manservant, nor his maidservant. The boy watches her with tender compassion. And he comes to me. Father, must duty do all the Ten Commandments say? Yes. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Father, when I grow big, must I do all the Ten Commandments say? Yes. Father, do you do all the Ten Commandments say? Yes. Well, Father, I don't believe that I can do all those things that the Ten Commandments say. There is a great hullabaloo among the children in the courtyard. I hear them shouting something, and I go to the window and see my little boy in the front rank of the ruffians screaming, fighting with clenched fists, without his cap. I know that he'll come up before long and tell me about it. Presently appears. He stands still, as is his way by my side. Says nothing. I steal a glance at him. He's greatly excited and proud and glad. Like one who has fearlessly done his duty. Well, what fun you've been having down there. What was a Jewish boy we were beating up? What? A Jewish boy? Are you beating him up? Yes. What had he done? Nothing. He seems puzzled. I look so queer suddenly. Now I snatch my hat and run out of the door as fast as I can. Come, come. We must find this Jewish boy and beg his pardon. My little boy hurries after me. He does not understand a word of it, but he is terribly in earnest. What's his name? Nathan. Nathan? Nathan? There's nobody in the courtyard. We go out in the street. Nathan! All in vain. The Jewish boy and his persecutors are blown away into space. So we go and sit up in my room again. 
Well, nothing to be done now. Hope you'll meet that Jewish boy someday so that you can give him your hand and ask him to forgive you. You must tell him that you did it only because you were stupid. But if another time anyone does him any harm, I hope you'll go in and help him and beat up the other fellow as long as you can move a limb. Yes, sir. I can see by my little boy's face that he is ready to do what I wish. So now I have to explain. Now, let me tell you. The Jews are by way of being quite a wonderful people. You remember David about whom Dirty reads at school? He was a Jewish boy. And the child Jesus, whom everybody worships and loves, although he died 2,000 years ago. He was a Jew, too. My little boy stands with his arms on my knee. Now... The old Hebrews rise before us in all their splendor and power. They ride on their camels in coats of many colors and with long beards. Moses and Joseph and his brethren and Samson and David and Saul. We hear wonderful stories. The walls of Jericho fall at the sound of the trumpet. What next? Go on, Father, go on. The whole day is devoted to Jews. We learn that many of the most famous men in the world are Jews. And when evening comes, and Mother sits down at the piano and sings the song which Father loves above all other songs, it appears that the words were written by one Jew and the melody composed by another my little boy is hot and red when he falls asleep that night. He turns restlessly in his bed and talks in his sleep. He's a little feverish tonight. We're spending the summer in the country. A long way out where the real country is. Cows and horses, pigs and sheep, a beautiful dog and hens and ducks form our circle of acquaintances. The sun burns us. We eat like farmhands, sleep like guinea pigs and wake like larks. Presently, for better or worse, we get neighbors. They're regular city people. The pearl of the family is Erna. Erna is five years old. Her very small face is pale green, with watery blue eyes and yellow curls. She is richly and gaily dressed in a broad and slovenly sash, a daintily embroidered dress, short openwork socks, and patent leather shoes. I at once perceived that my little boy's eyes have seen a woman. Altogether, there's no doubt as to the condition of his heart. One morning, he proposes. He's sitting with his beloved on the lawn. Close to them, her aunt is nursing her rheumatism under a red parasol. Up in the balcony above, I sit, like providence, and see everything, myself unseen. Mama, you shall be my sweetheart. I have a sweetheart already at home. Her name is Dirty. This communication naturally by no means lowers Erna's suitor in her eyes, but it immediately rouses or Auntie's moral instincts. If you have a sweetheart, you must be true to her. But Erna's going to be my sweetheart. Listen, child, you're a very naughty boy. If you have given this, uh, Dirty. That's an extraordinary name. But if you've given her your word, you must keep it till you die. Otherwise, you'll never, never be happy. 
My little boy understands not a word and answers not a word, but later, after lunch, he comes up to where his mother and I are sitting, puts his hands in his pockets, looks straight before him. Father, can't you have two, sweethearts? The question comes quite unexpectedly. At the moment, I don't know what to answer. Well? I pull my waistcoat down and my collar up. Yes. Yes, you can have two sweethearts. Uh, but it is wrong. It leads to more fuss and unpleasantness than you can possibly imagine. Are you so fond of Erna? Yes. Do you want to marry her? Yes. Well, then, the thing is settled. We'll write to Dirty and give her notice. Well, there's nothing else to be done. I'll write now, and you can give the letter yourself to the postman when he comes this afternoon. If you take my advice, you'll make her a present of your ball, and you'll not be so much upset. She can have my goldfish, too, if she likes. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, give her the goldfish. Then she really will have nothing in the world to complain of. My little boy goes away. But presently he returns. Father, have you written a letter to Dirty? Not yet, my boy. Time enough. I shan't forget it. Father, I'm so fond of Dirty. She was certainly a dear little girl. Father, I'm also so fond of her. We look at each other. This is no joke. Perhaps we'd better wait with a letter till tomorrow. Or perhaps it would be best if we talked to Dirty ourselves. We get back to town. Then my eyes surprise an indescribable smile on our mother's face. All a woman's incapacity to understand man's honesty is contained within that smile. And I resent it greatly. Come. Let us go. My little boy and I go out to a place we know of far away behind the hedge where we lie on our back and look up at the blue sky and talk together sensibly as two gentlemen should. keep him at home any longer, says his mother. He himself is glad to go, of course, because he doesn't know what school is. I know what it is, and I know also that there is no escape for him, but I am sick at heart. So we go for our last morning walk along the road where something wonderful has always happened to us. We sit down by the edge of our usual ditch, and suddenly my heart triumphs over my understanding. I just want to tell you that school is a horrid place. You can have no conception of what you have to put up with there. They will tell you that two and two are four. Mother's taught me that already. Yes, but that is wrong. Two and two are never four. 
Only very seldom. And that's not all. You will never have any more time to play in the courtyard with Ina. When he shouts to you to come out, you'll have to sit and read about a lot of horrible old kings who've been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years, if they ever existed at all. Which, for my part, I simply don't believe. My little boy doesn't understand me. But he sees that I am sad. Puts his hand in mine. Mother says that you must go to school to become a clever boy. Mother says that Ina is ever so much too small and stupid to go to school. I bow my head. I nod and say nothing. I take him to school. See how he gallops up the steps without so much as turning to look back at me. Here ends this story about my little boy. What more can there be to tell? He is no longer mine. I have handed him over to society. There was nothing else to be done. Really? Was there nothing else to be done? I wonder. Small boys have a bad time of it, you know. They had a worse time of it in the old days. Mm, that's poor comfort. The world is still full of parents and teachers who shake their stupid heads and turn up their old eyes and cross their flat chests with horror at the wickedness of youth. Children are so disobedient, they say, so naughty, so self-willed, and talk so disrespectfully to their elders. And what do we do? We who know better... We do what we can. She says it in such a way and looks at me with two such sensible eyes. They're so strong and so true that I suddenly think things quite well for our little boy. And I become quiet and cheerful like herself. Those teachers of his better look out, though. My little boy, for all I care, may take from them all the English and geography and history that he can, but they shan't throw dust in his eyes about the important things. I shall keep him awake, and we shall have great fun finding them out. And I shall help him with his English and geography and history. Tonight, the Columbia Network has brought you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in dramatized versions of three famous short stories. I'm a Fool by Sherwood Anderson, The Open Window by H.H. H. Monroe, Saki, and My Little Boy by Carl Ewald. We now present the star and director of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. My little boy grew up to be a writer like his father, Carl Ewald. And according to Mr. Alexander Wolcott, who made widely known that indescribably lovely testament of love, 
My little boy has chiefly distinguished himself in Denmark as the translator of successful English novels, including The Green Hat. The second and somewhat sinister posy in this evening's children's garland was the open window by H.K. Monroe, who signed himself Sackey. It has been said of Hector Monroe that he was entirely incapable of boring a fellow creature. It is, God knows, eternally true of Saki. Indeed, his sister's earliest recollections of him in the nursery where he and their brother Charlie had been rashly left to their own devices is worthy of his most improbable heroes. To quote from her, Hector had seized the long-handled hearthbrush, plunged it into the fire, and chased Charlie and me around the table, shouting, I am God, I am going to destroy the world. H.K. Monroe joined up at the beginning of the war and was killed by a sniper on the 14th of November, 1916, just before dawn. The author of our opening bill, that searching and poignant confession of a young lover who lied and lost, is this moment the editor of two newspapers in Marion, Virginia, one Democratic and the other Republican. This virtually perfect condition of life is the happy ending of a career that commenced surprisingly and suddenly one hot afternoon when Mr. Sherwood Anderson was the manager of a paint factory in Elyria, Ohio. He was sitting in his office, the story goes, dictating a letter. When he turned to his stenographer and said sharply, I am walking in the bed of a river. He then put on his hat and walked out of the paint factory and also out of Elyria, Ohio, never to return. But Sherwood Anderson never forsook his native state. Not really. After all, nothing could be more faithful to it than I'm a fool. Well, next week, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Till then, thanks, everybody, and good night. Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air, part of its series First Person Singular from the summer of 1938. It brings us to the end of this edition of the Big Broadcast. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel I hope you feel that way too Let's make a date for next Sunday night I'm here to stay Twill be my delight to sing again bring again the things you want me to I love to spend each Sunday with